0: Hi, sorry here. Just a quick announcement before we get started with this episode. We talk in this episode about the Space Brain Science Fiction Film Festival. Unfortunately, because everyone got COVID, we've had to delay it and postpone it. So the previous date is no longer accurate. We now have a new date, June 18th. We have the same red carpet. We have the same selection of films. We have workshops, including filmmaker Ben Young and us, So when we get to the point where we're talking about the film festival, be aware that we were not aware that we were all going to fall terribly ill and be incapable of running the film festival. We are not in that way anymore, and it is June 18th. So remember, June 18th, Mandra Performing Arts Centre Film Festival. Get your tickets at our website or at the Mandra Performing Arts Centre website. From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. And welcome to Space Friends, the show where we joy-watch sci-fi movies and then talk about what was good and what was great. I'm sorry, and this is Mark.
1: Hiya, it's episode 80, which means we're talking about a science fiction classic, classic. and this time it is Blade Runner, which came out in 1982. Quite an experience to live in fear, sorry. That's what it's like to live in fear. To oh, live like a
0: slave. To live like a
1: slave.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: very deep In this episode we'll talk about what we liked about Blade Runner The ins and outs of narrative and film language Plus a nice deep dive into a specific piece of science that the filmmakers are proposing This version of Blade Runner, I don't know which version you actually got your hands on Sorry, I watched the... I don't know final recut third time through Ridley Scott's kind of watched it and liked it oh. and edited it and put it back to, I don't know who knows it, there's so many versions of was this film Was it called the final cut? I think it was the final cut. Okay, there are seven uh, versions. <laughs> it, I don't know. When I went to watch this there's so many versions it's hard to know which one to pick. So there's a little warning for you. I don't know which one to pick. Pick one of them. Uh this is we just I just mentioned Ridley Scott behind the uh, camera of Blade Runner and all of those artistic decisions. Of course, we did Alien a long time ago now on Space Frames. Yes,
0: and you can see the similar. You can. Um, aesthetics
1: in this one you totally can you can see ridley scott and i want to talk a little bit about more about ridley scott in tonight's episode this story was based on philip k dicks do androids dream of electric sheep what a title writers what a title if you have never read that go check it out and the screen um writers were hampton fancher and david webb peoples so turn back now if you haven't seen this movie, and then turn back in. This is your spoiler warning. This is your warning. I was distracted. For you me. were distracted. Distracted by the K. By Dick's novels,
0: Fu- futurism. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tune back in once you have watched at least one version of this film. I yep. watched the original theatrical release. Okay. That had been remastered, yeah. so it, it which is good because I watched it in the uh, high definition version. Yeah, and the other versions vary from being the original, original, original theatrical release wow. through to the pre-release uh, master print, or whatever they call it, mm. the uh, which was only like a test screener and was missing, say, s- the the soundtrack and things, yeah. through to the final cut, which is where. The, yeah, you know, they they'd kind of gotten um, that original master print got out, and then they said, "Oh, it's actually kind of popular." And Ridley Scott saw that and went, "No, no, no, you can't show that." That's <laughs> yes, that is kind of mostly my director's yeah, yeah cut, but it doesn't have like all of the um the right sound effects, the yeah, lighting. Yeah. It's it's not a finished thing. It's rough. Yes. So they went, "Well, give us a director's cut." So yeah. they brought out in ninety two a director's cut, mm. uh, and then. More recently, in two thousand and I want to say two thousand probably, probably
1: a remastered VHS in nineteen ninety six or something. Yeah,
0: there, was, there would have been like a laser disc version. Laser disc version. But, but then there was the final cut, which is where Ridley Scott said, "Okay, seriously, yeah, give me all of the the bits and pieces. Mm. Everyone wants to see it because yeah. it's it's a popular movie. He got his budget, and he and he did it through." Uh, yeah, you could say it, it probably wasn't the way he originally intended it in '82 because mm. it was done 20 years later. Mm. But it's like, maybe it's like this is the way I originally would have done it if I was as good a director then as I am now.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So that's it. That's the final. So once you've watched one of those versions, join us back in <laughs> to discuss because we're going to yeah. go all through all of it.
1: Yes, definitely. And you will really see a master filmmaker play when you watch Blade Runner, no matter which version, I think. So, was what was your number one takeaway from Blade Runner?
0: Oh, I, look, easy enough here. The, the number one takeaway is I forgot how damn good Rutger Hauer is. Yeah, I know. Yeah, in he's this, brilliant. In this film, he just... Absolutely pulls the rug out from underneath Harrison Ford. I mean, Harrison Ford's absolutely solid in yep. this. Yeah, You know, he's, it shows why he was so popular mm. in particular during the 80s, mm. uh, late 70s yep, through yep. to the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, He had like a decade of just yeah. blockbuster, you know, amazing sh- movies.
1: Yeah, after not being able to get into really yeah. mainstream movies until Star Wars, and, and Star Wars was just a gamble of a film anyway. And but then yeah. Rutger
0: Howe comes along in this film... And he he plays such an interesting and uh, nuanced android learning emotions, but also with solid military training, like this yeah. weird combination of a serious, strong decisiveness and tactical, you know, mouse, yeah. in combination with someone that doesn't know how to deal with grief or happiness or mm. anything in between. It uh, does It's just yeah. uh, I've seen Quite a few Rutger Hauer films But mm. They have been Like He's done mostly Sort of B grade films After mm. this one Yeah yeah Like it's just um, I think maybe there's Apparently he, Apparently he was a little bit Quirky Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eccentric in it But he was Dutch yeah. You've got to expect that yeah.
1: and There's a film where he's The blind man
0: Yes, The, the that Blind is brilliant.
1: Yeah, that is a brilliant mm. film. That one is something from my childhood that I probably need to and go sci-fi. Salute, salute
0: to the Jugger, S- yeah, which is a post-apocalyptic. Yeah, okay. right. But it's again, it's a little bit B-grade-ish. Mm. Um, mm. Could have done with a bit of Ridley Scott or James Cameron. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, they should have done. It would have been good. And, and it was in any number of other sort of films. But my number one takeaway on this is I watched it and I was watching Ridley I was going, now I remember why... I watched so many of his films in the 80s, not just because they were in the bargain basement, you know, bins of the rental. 50 cents a week or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. but because in this film, he's stunning.
1: Yeah, he puts on a masterclass of acting. If you're an actor out there, go have a look at this because this is someone at the peak of their performance. And obviously Mm. under Ridley Scott, just really delivers this complex character. You know, quite often... See, it's interesting because Ridley Scott publicly has said... Blade Runner was never meant to be political or deep (laughs) or a thinking man's film. It was always supposed... His intention was it was like a blockbuster. Like, it was supposed to be a fun, entertaining romp. And I really... I kind of... I read a bit about that before watching it this time myself. And so, I went in with a bit of different eyes. Like, I kind of went in going... Was Ridley Scott just kind of, you know, going, hey, they gave me a really nice budget and a couple of great actors and I'm just going to have a bit of fun here. And then the irony is the film's come out and it's kind of established not only box office success, critical success, but then kind of like cult success over time. Mm. And as you were saying, you know, the whole time he was like... It's not quite polished the way I would have done it and then ten years later they're like, Yeah, sure, you yeah, have some more money and polish it up because it was still selling, you know? And it had that following. So it's a film that any So young what you're, what you're filmmaker- saying
0: there, is Ridley Scott failed in this film. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because he made he made such a more complex film than he I think his intention. He made yeah a, a classic. <laughs> yeah, well, but maybe that's how you make a classic. Like your you, your intention shouldn't be I'm going to make a classic. Oh, it's, I think it's too it's hard like, to do that. It's like, but I mean, in saying that, you and I want to come back to this later. But you look at the cinematography. You look at that acting. Like you look at that subtext that's going on with Rukta, You look at uh, even how Harrison delivers his character they're all kind of standalone masterpieces in a way. Mm. You know, there's there's so many aspects of this film that is a masterpiece. Like, And so many other times you watch a film, you're like, wow, the production design, especially in sci-fi, like the production is like the special effects are phenomenal. But, you know, maybe bits of the story needed a little bit more editing or a bit of tweaking or, you know, the actors weren't quite present or complex enough, but that, oh, the way they showed us the future was incredible. Mm. But this is a film where sort of each of those lines are just that peak grade material. And it's a real pleasure to watch this, especially the version I watched this time. I really
0: enjoyed. Yes, there's likewise. I have to say, so this is, um, it's got a lot going in there. You've just mentioned a whole bunch of stuff, but we like to ask the question, is it hope, warning or experiment? Yeah, it's a hard one, this, I
1: reckon. I did have trouble answering, and I'd love to know your thoughts out there in podcast ear listening land. I'm going a warning, and the reason is pretty simple that if you break the story down to inventing robots, it's the oldest story, isn't it? Like inventing robots, and then they get too sophisticated for us as as, our in, as the inventors, and then we don't realize the kind of consequences of them developing that extra level of sophistication. Like, what happens when they kind of think like humans? And that's what, you know, Rook to Hale's character and, and the others were basically thinking. They came to Earth because they're like, you gave us a life expectancy of four years. We don't want that. We want to live longer than four years. And so I think it's just the good old robotics getting too f- too far ahead of us. We saw it in our last episode if you want to go back and look at the machine. You know that that was again a similar kind of theme, wasn't it? That that idea of robotics intelligence pushing to that next level and the consequences and I think that's what this film kind of suggests. I think also a warning, the other reason for warning is because it is a bit of a it's not Mad Max dystopian world this world, but it is a pretty broken society that we're mm. seeing. And, and, you know, some people have left Earth and they kind of they've left rubbish behind sort of idea. <laughs> like, mm. like it's not, it doesn't look like that pleasant of a place. And that's what's so good about Deckard, Harrison Ford's character is he's kind of moping around in this city like, <laughs> like, like a teenager going, this place is kind of crap, right? Like, but it's what we've got, you know? Yeah. And even at the end, it's sort of, it's not an upbeat ending, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's an ending of like, oh, okay, well, we've got to kind of oh, keep running, you know. Like, Well, this so, is
0: where we're going to have to discuss about the different versions <laughs> of this film.
1: Yeah, I know. That's the thing, right? But but anyway, we'll come back to the, the ending later. But that, I think warning, what do you guys so think out there?
0: That's a bit of a retelling of Frankenstein's story, basically, mm. sort of the, the same warning yeah, there that about same creating idea, life, yeah. a life I, I would almost sort of go that this is, I don't, I don't really think it's hitting towards hope. No, see, I think because there's there's none of this sort of um, science overcoming adversity. But experiment, I was thinking on the other hand is is we're we're examining this this idea. So, what if you have a person with Um, only emotion but no memory? Does that work? Yeah. What if you have a person that has memory and emotion, but they're not human? Mm. You know, how does that, does that make them human or not? Yeah. Like So there's yeah. this question of, of what elements make up a person yeah. to be considered human.
1: Yeah, and that's really the start, right? Like yeah. that question or that questioning that the Blade Runners do to the robots to find out if they are a robot because they look so much like humans. Mm. The robotics has gotten a point that you can't see the difference and that's kind of at the start of that grilling of those questions isn't yeah. it? and the and the way that he fails that test is by illuminating that he is a robot <laughs> in how he answers those questions. A human would answer them slightly different. Yes. and Which, again, we saw last week, didn't we? It's a very similar thing. Yeah, that, thing was, that was
0: instead of a Voight camp, it was just yeah. the classic Turing test. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't shoot the robot when it failed. No. <laughs> He was trying to make it pass. Well, the robot
1: shot Holden, right? Like, so, in and and I code.
0: suppose that's an interesting contrast. Is that the voigt Kampf test is to discover the robot. Yeah. The uh, Turing test is to try to teach a robot to be more indistinguishable mm. from human. Well, here we're trying to distinguish them. We're trying to see that they aren't human. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So uh, this isn't the first time you've seen this film.
1: No, I mean, like a lot of people, probably seen this a few times. I I would have seen at some point in the 80s, like an awful TV cut, you know, on Australian television with ads, really dark on a really crappy television. We had a really crappy television as a kid. Then I reckon I saw the theatrical version, maybe on VHS at a slumber party thing, when I was like a teenager, mm. but again, that was pretty bad quality, you know, like everything felt very dark. And then when I went to, which I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, like when I went to sort of film school, film studies at uni, Blade Runner was one of those films that was brought up. It's actually in the main textbook for all film students across the world, which is film art, Boardwell and Thompson. The main reason why they use it as an example is The Lighting. So oh, yes. they talk about the lighting. We'll come back to that. So it's like one of the best examples of lighting, and and I agree with that. But I remember watching it at, in those uni, whatever it was, first year, second year uni, and kind of go, again going, I'm, I'm a, li- I feel like I'm a bit out of the loop of this film. Hmm. Like I'm, I feel like I'm missing it because I also had, I had other people at film school. I had friends that used to quote this film, and I'd be like, ah, I don't know, it's not quite tickling me. Um, And then I watched it again, maybe 10 years ago. And again, I wasn't super charged by it. Like I wasn't super excited by it. So when we decided to watch it for Space Brains, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a classic because so much of society, the film world, the critics. I mean, like we were just saying at the Mm. start, I mean... Most directors don't get another chance to put out the film, a director's cut. Most directors don't get a third chance to revamp it and <laughs> and repolish it and get and get, I, I be bet, given funds to I redo it. I bet most it.
0: directors would like to do that.
1: Most directors probably would like to do it, you know, or, or some version of that maybe. And that's not just because it's Ridley Scott, you know, he's made a big career of being a director, but it's... Literally, this film dictates that, right? Like this, there's a need there for it. As people want him more, it's like Star Wars, you know. Like people want more from the Star Wars world, so it's
0: there's a demand. And, and they finally have made a sequel to this film. They have, yeah. Which I guess we'll cover in in some future episode. Yeah. It's not. We haven't got a plan for it yet, but I can see it coming along. I'm I'm hesitant to see. It. I'm always hesitant to see sequels because yeah. uh, often or remakes because often what happens is it gets. Take the sequel requirement comes from the executive producing money making, kind of the money, right? They'll go, yeah. and, and rarely does it come from a director or writer going, Artistically, there is yeah. more to tell, yes, and yeah. so I really must tell more about yeah. this. It's usually, it's a there's yeah, you know, oh, people like Blade Runner. But let's maybe. get some of these young, fancy, handsome stars in there. Yeah. And, and let's we'll, make
1: it a bit more fun, hey? We'll, yeah,
0: <laughs> we'll try to capture more audience because the original Blade Runner, the original when it was released theatrically, it was up against like some stiff competition with like E.T. and um, it, it, what else was going, E.T. and Tron and, yeah. Uh, 1982. Uh, yeah. But it, yeah, it was coming out the same weekend yeah. as those movies. Right. So it, it didn't have a spectacular box office hit. Yeah. But, Slow burner. Yeah, but after after some time, people started seeing it, and particularly when it went out to video, mm. they couldn't sell enough copies. Yeah, and yeah. so that's why they went, "Oh, geez, okay, let's get this back out." Then, so yeah. they they did a new a second cinema release of it. Yeah, and then they did the ninety two. You know, director's cut release of it, and then they, yeah, like, and this, and so the, as I said, there's seven different versions of this film.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this time round, I really did enjoy it. I don't know if it was the version I watched. I don't think it was he- like looking online. It's not like it's heavily different to the other versions no, i looked it's, at. No, it's not. I did, as I said before, came in probably eyes a bit more open. Like, I don't love this film, but I'll just look at it. And I did, knowing that Ridley Scott maybe had more of a just an entertainment value and me looking at it and going oh I really appreciate what he's done there and I really like that And oh those that lighting is getting me and there's lots of little motives in this film and we'll come back to that as well and I I liked that and I don't know I don't know I I enjoyed this viewing so much more than I've had on probably five other viewings of this film
0: my experience is almost almost the same minus the film school bit so I watched this the first time on a bad VHS tape Yep, in the 80s sometime so you know I'm not super old at that point uh, I I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing I would have been 12 ish and I again I found it as a 12 year old it's pretty friggin' boring yeah like it's not a 12 year old's movie no which is the problem because most movies released today are 12 year old's <laughs> movies because that's where yeah. the money is right no. so this this didn't really thrill me but in 92 so I was I was an older teenager, mm. uh, still probably interested more in Flash. You know, in 92, what I'm coming through, like Terminator 2. Yeah. And uh, I just, I'd seen Predator and Minus. Robocop yeah. and Total Recall. And and then I'm seeing this movie, mm. Director's Cut. And again, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and that was the last time I saw it. Mm. I hadn't seen it since. So that's... Oh, geez, I don't want to do the calculations like 30 years ago yep oh yep. almost exactly 30 years ago yeah yeah, yeah. I am an old man <laughs> <laughs> well, when 900 you reach not so good will you look so uh, it makes this
1: actually it is it makes this 40 it's the 40th anniversary 40th it? anniversary and it's our 80th it's our 80th episode and it's the 40th anniversary so I I right?
0: watched this you know a few days ago yeah but I I put on the Space Brains goggles. Yeah. And that's that's why we talk about joy watching here. You mm. you're gonna go into these films, even if you heard bad things or good things, whatever you go, yeah. you go in to joy watch. The idea that's is right. just like uh if you were hypothetically hand the keys to a car and pointed to a paddock yeah. or, or a racetrack and the someone says, Look, just go nuts and you go, Oh squid, I get to ride a car as fast yeah. as I can around a racetrack. Yeah. If you came and found a Ferrari, yeah, you're gonna be pretty excited. Yeah. If you came out and found an old that's and Cortina, <laughs> you're still going to be pretty excited. You go, so I can just thrash this as hard as I like, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sweet.
1: Yeah. And
0: it's the same thing. So you come to these movies with that same attitude like, yeah, I'm going to enjoy the science fiction out of this. Even if <laughs> even if the most enjoyable part of this movie is simply the lighting or the fact that they hit the um, inciting incident right on 12 minutes and it was a compelling inciting incident. Yeah, yeah. If everything else is rubbish, that's what I'm going to get out mm. of this. And so I went into this film like that. I thought oh, yeah, I'm yeah. going to get something out of this. Yeah. I was immediately blown away. Yeah. I, I was yeah. looking at the, the special effects. I went because I got the high definition version mm. out, uh, and as I said, my previous viewing, I saw a cinema release of it, but I was probably a bit more interested in more explosions and gunshots. Yeah, yeah. And prior to that, it was a, and I was also still remembering the old VHS, which was yeah. only a few years earlier that I'd seen it. Yeah, yeah. And so watching this one the other night, you know, high definition, I was looking at this world. And I, went, I thought to myself, okay, even before any actors appeared on screen, mm. we're seeing that opening images, I went, yeah. this is really good.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, and, that opening city shot is an amazing And shot. it was just
0: like, like the, the idea of having the the gas burn-offs mm. in the midst of the city sprawl. Yeah. Which, which kind of you're going, is that because they're drilling oil there or is that because... It's rotting so much underneath it. They've got to take these rotting gases, which yeah. I'm thinking is the idea, yeah, yeah. and burn them off up in the atmosphere because that's all they can do with them. There's just too much yeah. of it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I got totally sucked in. Then I started looking at paying attention to things. Like as you said, the lighting in it is just gorgeous. And then I was, I was you know, looking at, okay, well, how's the acting going in this? How's old uh, Harrison Ford looking? Because he's looking young in this one. yeah. And through and through, and then I started looking at uh, you know, the, the more philosophical points raised in this regarding you know identity yep. and through the whole movie yeah i was i, I was thinking the, I, I don't know what i was thinking before yeah. this is actually <laughs> a really good movie yeah yeah like, and uh, you,
1: you sorry's saying something that i hadn't even thought of but i think subconsciously that's exactly how i sat through this was that joy watching idea and i just i just came in with i guess not an expectation that i thought i was going to like it and I got to say, like that opening shot—the city, the gas station burning, stuff, whatever fumes, whatever—the flying car that comes past, and then you start just slowly migrating into that cityscape, and and thinking that city's not been done with computers; it's been done with matte painting, uh, Matt and this point. is practical, you know, props and all that. And apparently, that Tyrell pyramid was actually nine feet tall in real life like mm. that's how big of a model they built you know and um it's just you you take that in and the fact that then they had those giant signs and the flying cars and it's something that Ridley Scott is quite known to do which is that moody landscape you know any sci-fi films and his non-sci-fi films he does a lot of those huge landscape shots that are very moody you know and and that opening Shot of Blade Runner is very moody. Yes, <laughs> and I, I, it, I it pulled me in, sucked me in. What was your favourite scene?
0: I think my my favourite scene is Rutger Hauer doing his famous monologue, mm. which it's a good monologue. Uh, we should have included that launch party. <laughs> That's a good one. So that famously he ad libbed portions of it. Yeah. So the original obviously included glittering sea beams and the ten gate and and that sort of thing he ad-libbed the the finishing of it so he's, he's always done multiple takes and he's done the original a couple of times the real as it was written but you know rutger's an artist mm. and uh as i said that's you know he's, he's known to be a little bit quirky here and there and uh he puts his own energy into his characters as, really,
1: as, i want one more take
0: one, one kiss his, I'll need another take. Like, so, <laughs> sure, so he, he did that, well. he did that take and he's sitting there looking like, uh, he's got the expression on his face like, like a lost little child, mm. which is what he is. He's yeah, just yeah. four years old. I yeah, mean, yeah. and of that four years, it's only like the past couple of years that he's had anything resembling emotions. Mm. And he, he sits there and talks about these amazing things and he ends up with saying, and all, all that will be lost. Yeah. Like, and that was kind of meant to be where it was meant to be and all that yeah. would be lost. Yeah, yeah. But then he had the whole, you know, like tears in the rain. Mm. And evidently that was just an on-the-spot decision because they were covering him with water and yep. uh, he was in a, you know, sad acting state. He was acting sad <laughs> and fully into it. And he had that in there and just the, the delivery of that. Mm. And they kept that in there because his delivery was just, perfect yeah. and when you watch it and you hear it if you're really in it you're, you're you get yourself in that moment mm. it is very touching and yeah. and sad and you and you think you know, like he's talked about essentially quite horrible things like yeah. warfare yeah and explosions and i don't know what sea beam is but it's glitters uh presumably because he was a uh, a military unit
1: yeah
0: uh and he's killed a lot of people mm. as he as he mentions at some point in this film he's He's done some terrible, terrible things. <laughs> you know, uh, obviously, I am a good actor, so yeah. you would have all been crying by now if I was goosebumps and everything. But he he sits there and he says his, all these things, but he says it like it's this, it's an amazing and magnificent sort of thing, not a good thing. He said, mm. but it is something that is um, spectacular and and momentous and moving and mm. important, and yet it's going to be lost because it's only been replicants doing that and him in particular he's gotten down there and and it's and it's done yes and yeah you can't help but feel that sense of loss with it and that like tears in the rain with the rain pouring on him and the way he delivers it it really it really touched me
1: yeah well it's quite quite a metaphor that isn't it because and i liked you just describing him like he is a four-year-old child so he's it's almost like he's realising at that moment of death, It's it, what he's realising is so much more profound than us humans. Like us humans are going, just kill them all. Like just destroy them all. You're not yeah. even trying to think through what could we actually gain from this? Like what could we do? It's the fear factor again as a human, isn't it? And even with Tyrell, you know, when he visits him, that, that scene, ing- I loved that scene because he says, like he's trying to like almost cuddle up to Tyrell, you're the maker, you're the father, you know, and and he goes, no, (laughs) like, I can't fix you, I can't do it, and aren't you a beautiful killing machine? And so therefore he goes, yeah, okay, I'm a killing machine, I'll kill you, father, you know, basically. And I thought that scene was a really amazing scene Mm. because he, he he was even then more mature than the humans, and then right at the end it's the same thing. Like, he's trying to kill Deckard, Harrison Ford, but he doesn't. He he saves him, and you see him thinking that through. That's why the acting is so powerful from him in particular. Is you can see this stuff going on behind his eyeballs, can't you? Yeah. Which is which is very human, but it's he's not human. So as us as the audience, you're really compelled to love his version of that character, and he yeah. just delivers. I mean, the the scope he delivers throughout this film. He goes from uh, sort of almost like logical machine. Um, absolute badass villain that you've ever seen and then kind of emotional reasoning and childlike behavior as well. So he does the whole gamma ray of emotions throughout this film. Whole, he must have been exhausted. The whole sea beam, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> he must have been exhausted. It's kind of, um, you know, you, you see these films where actors do this and they come back around where, yeah, maybe afterwards they're not quite they're the same way as they were before the filming.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, was, it was a very moving piece and it's full of... I mean, this whole film is full of you know, these quite suddenly intense moments mm. but there's also a whole lot of science in all of this, mm. science fiction, which mm. is great. It's a whole world full.
1: Yeah, it's a world building. Was inside. there
0: some part of that science fiction that particularly caught your attention?
1: I liked that Tyrell, Tyrell, sorry, made Rachel. So I guess she was like an assistant or something, right? And then he made, so he made her as a robot, implanted the memories. She thinks she's human. Yeah. So I just thought that's a really cool concept, isn't it? Like that itself could be a film, like a person questioning whether they are a robot or not. Yeah. Right? I mean,
0: you could almost have put
1: that subtext into this film. Yeah. And had, you know, Deckard questioned whether he was a robot or not. That's right. Yeah, totally, totally. And that's what I've felt like before. But, yeah, like it, it was that kind of whole concept of just just that bit, you know, like the, Like he, he got tested on her, you know, and she's, she thinks she's human, so yeah. she's not treating... Because we've seen already Leon do the test and how he reacted, but then now she's not reacting that same way. And then it's a nice bit of kind of... uh you know it's a nice character development that then she comes to Deckard's apartment after that and kind of is like yeah but I'm not a robot right like I'm not and he's like no yeah yeah and she's like no 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 and he's he doesn't oh. even have to say anything he's, she's like holy shit I'm a robot <laughs> like like and she storm like she kind of storms off right and then even later she's the B story of this film and I thought it was a really cool B story then even later there's that whole scene where after she saves him, that he they kind of have a really intimate moment and so very human-like, he kind of makes a move to her. Now, unlike a robot, more like a human, she's she doesn't want that yeah. because of all the pain and anguish she's going through. So I just thought that actual um, development was a really cool sci-fi development. It's like, could you imagine? I mean, and I suppose it was setting up Tyrell that he wasn't necessarily like this ethical um, maker of these machines, was he?
0: No, and I think I think you could tell that from the point where he he said, "These we've developed these machines to the point, uh, you know, the Nexus Six is so advanced that it starts to develop its own form of emotion." Yeah. Oh, what are you going to do about that? Oh, well, we just kill them early. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. like, that's that's really, I mean, yeah, they're robots that you created for work. Yeah. So there might, it's one of these blurry lines is if you get them fresh off the production line mm. and then you chuck them straight into a vat of acid and melt them back down again to components to rebuild, yeah, you sort of go, okay, well, that's definitely... You've just destroyed, you haven't just you have killed a person. Yeah. You've just destroyed a piece of equipment. But then there's some gray area between the point where they come off the production line through to the four-year mark. Somewhere in there, they're starting to move into that. They're not just sentient because no. people often talk about like the definition of sentient is able to perceive yes okay so pretty much everything is sentient to some degree mm. and that alone is insufficient argument for morality mm. it's a very strong argument but it's insufficient for the completeness yeah you want to move into sapience self-awareness because once you start talking about something is is more so than simply able to experience Pain. I mean, a, a plant reacts to damage in a way that you could say is experiencing pain. Mm. But even the most committed vegan still eats plants mm. yeah. because there is obviously a line that they draw somewhere morally and say, "Yeah, that sort of pain is not enough of an argument to yeah. stop me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, obviously, a, a vegan, for example, has drawn that line to say, if it's a, you know an animal mm. uh, of the then. I don't do it. Yep. Uh Whereas, you know, various omnivores have it slightly further along and you know, some people won't eat dog mm. because they have too much empathy with dogs. Yeah. Uh, some people do eat dogs because for them, uh, it's just another animal. I mean, yep. why not? Yeah. Uh, all the way up to, obviously, there are, you know, most people draw the line at humans. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some most. people, yeah, and, and there are people who draw a line at, like, say, primates, chimps mm. and gorillas. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be eating a monkey or an, no. or an ape. But then there's also people who do eat monkeys and apes mm-hmm. for various reasons. Yeah. And then there's people who eat people. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we call them psychopaths. And, <laughs> and, oh, you know, not always the case. There's ritual versions of Yeah, them, there's ritual and stuff. And there's cultural yeah. stuff which kind of blurs the line a bit. Yeah. But anyway, we all have this line and a robot that dies at four years, Terrell has just, he's arbitrarily said... Four years, and this is regardless of any other testing or any other signs or symptoms, at four years, I've determined that they are still machine enough to Mm. be terminated without prejudice. Yeah. After that, they would be too human. Mm. And that's basically what he said. Yeah. But in this movie, we see this range of, like, Leon is probably the least advanced. Yeah. He's still the most childlike. In fact, in his testing that he does, he almost comes across as... Someone who's autistic. Yeah. 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 You know, in, you know, you, you've, you're in a desert. Oh, which one? What? Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, it's a hypothetical. What do you mean? Yeah. So, uh, whereas, yeah, through to uh, Priss and uh, Roy mm. are the most, you know, advanced emotional.
1: Yeah.
0: But even yeah. they are, they're only just like, Roy's only just on the burgeoning threshold mm. of being complete, you know? Yeah.
1: But they, they give them those little quirks, don't they? So like Roy goes, what I mentioned before, that emotional arc. He goes through an arc. Mm. He's also obviously having some sort of relationship with Press. So that itself is is different, isn't it? It's yeah. not like two machines like in a factory. Yeah, no. They, they've developed some sort of feelings for each other, uh, and then and then Leon. Leon has his photos as well. So that again is is like. You know, it's like it's like there's a character trait there, isn't it? Like yeah. he's he's taking photos, storing photos, like that's human. <laughs> you know, that that's a, that's someone having an experience. So because he wants memories, yeah, he's trying to gather those memories, and yeah. So so it's a very interesting one, and and let us know what you think about the science because this film is chock block full of sci-fi, super, you know superficially present flying cars science, you know off world travel military exploration robotics ai but at its heart it probably is like you mentioned before a bit of a metaphor like the frankenstein story it's a yeah. it's it could be the same story almost replicated a little bit but then put in this futuristic world so let us know what you thought about some of that sci-fi i think we should quickly touch on by the time you are listening to this episode you, we would have put on our inaugural Space Brains Science Fiction Film Festival.
0: Yes. So, well, I'll just pretend we have. Gee, that was a great day. That was a program.
1: fantastic day. What a day! Gee,
0: man, it started at <laughs> eleven o'clock, and when we had these workshops with you know award-winning uh, directors of you know. Netflix films and TV shows and Hollywood movies, published authors, published authors and scientists and science fiction experts, awesome podcasters,
1: yeah, in the world that you're listening to right now, yes, um, putting on a display of podcasting prowess and you know like a red carpet event, you know, glorified live on the internet, maybe, (laughs) maybe, but again, this is past tense,
0: past tense, oh yes, so
1: it could happen. Uh, or it did happen. It
0: could have did happen,
1: maybe. <laughs> maybe it happened. Maybe it's available now on the internet. Maybe you're instead of you're watching, you listen
0: to us, you should be... You can watch you can both. Watch. Yeah, you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're gonna, we've got uh, the film selections went out, so you're going to know what's going to be screening. And wasn't there some crackers in there? Uh, Sorry. Uh, there, there are some... Uh, it ranges from the rather startling to mm. the exciting to the sweet...
1: To the funny... To the funny... To the
0: scary... To the
1: scary, yeah... And, yeah, we've got... There's animation in there... There's, you know, like what we're talking about here with Blade Runner... Kind of dystopian futures... Uh, and then there's real emotional arc ones, like based, you know, real we've true got, emotional arcs.
0: We've got computers and cloning and robots. Oh,
1: yes, yeah, so much, so many different science fiction elements. Plus, a couple of the films are student films, and they just still blew our socks off. Um, unbelievable that students have made it. There's also, you know, quite a few local uh, West Australian films in there. There's a couple of uh, Australian films from, I think, Sydney.
0: We've got a couple uh, music videos. I mean, it's not a music video film festival. No. But we've got a couple of them. I think we've got four in total. But we chose two, which were just really cool.
1: Yeah. And they're Uh, they're very sci-fi. Very Um, interesting.
0: And so they're going to feature there as well.
1: Yeah, that will be part of it. So Um, if
0: you're you're, uh, in the Terra adapters or the MCP... Well done, you got screened earlier today. Your videos were just amazing on screen today.
1: (laughs) As long as everything goes well, which it would have earlier today. It did, yes. It did. It did go excellently. So, yeah, if you came to the festival, let us know. Hit us up on our socials. Uh, Hashtag us. Get us involved. Let us know.
0: Watch the videos. See if you can see yourself.
1: That's right. You might be out there. Share it. Okay, so let's get into some details about Blade Runner, the 1982 version, and why it is considered a classic. We've just gone through some of the kind of original starting points of where Surrey and I sit and what we've seen about Blade Runner in previous times. So, mentioned Ridley Scott, champion filmmaker, you know, he's someone that's been in the Hollywood system now 40 years. <laughs> We did an earlier episode, another classic, Alien. If you haven't seen Alien, go watch it, listen to the podcast. This was a pretty similar time, wasn't it, that um, Blade Runner only came out a couple of years after Alien and it was based on the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep? And the screenplay credits go to Hampton, Fancher and David Peoples. Uh, Harrison Ford we mentioned plays the Rick Deckard, Rook Da de Howe plays Roy Batty, Sean Young plays that robot Rachel, Edward James Olmos plays Gaff. I liked Gaff. You like Gaff, the ca- the you know, the other police officer.
0: Well he's the um origami man. And yeah. if you've seen Android, no, what's it, I Am Mother. I Am Mother, yeah. Because there's another film out now called Android Mother or Mother Android or something. No, I Am Mother by Western Australia's own Grant Spittori. Grant included in I Am Mother the use of origami with robots Mm. and the little origami message left behind to indicate a visitation. And Gaff is famous for that, Mm. and that's where some... Uh, I want to say controversy, is thrown up between these different versions of these films. Yes,
1: okay. We'll come back to that controversy a little bit later. Controversy is good. Stick around. We'll reveal some controversy. Uh, Daryl Hannah, as well as in there, plays Pris. William Sands plays that J.F. Sebastian. It was filmed in California, had a budget of $6 million. Not a bad uh, budget for 1982. Probably could be a little bit bigger it was, it was for Ridley, still but smallish. Like
0: When you take into account that Star Wars was... 30 mil, yeah, right, which was at the time huge, seemingly huge. Yeah,
1: Uh, but it did do a return of 40 million at the box office, so that's not too bad. That's not too bad at all, and that doesn't even take into account you know the global ongoing sales of all those other versions that have come out Uh, since. There's a
0: new role playing game that got kick started (sighs) just the other day and was funded within minutes.
1: So so I think this is a thing. I think it's probably done 10 times that kind of amount of money and Warner Brothers is the company behind this film. It, you know, it, it's a stayer. It's something that they can kind of keep going back to. Um, you mentioned that sequel. Ridley Scott was kind of in line to do a sequel around 2003, 2004, some sometime around then. Um, the same screenplay writers came back and they had another idea. Then that kind of got scrapped. Um, and it had some funds for a while and then Ridley wasn't interested. Um, and it went through a couple of different hands, a couple of different directors for a while there before they sort of settled on where they got to that sequel in, in, I think it was 2017, something like that came out. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll probably have a look at it in a future episode. So, anyway, with narrative, we're going to break down the main narrative plus talk about some of those film ast- aspects. Parts of this film. Uh, We like to break down the narrative into that good old fashioned three act structure that you will find most films, novels play into. Uh, This is based on a lot of the script writing teachers that you can find yourself Campbell, Schneider, McPhee, McKee, sorry, McKee, not McPhee, uh, and Field, but there's plenty more out there that still talk about this three act structure. What is the first act about, sorry.
0: The first act is all about introductions and it's about setting the scene and getting us into the story itself, mm-hmm. which is very important. Of course. Because there are films that don't, don't do that. seem to <laughs> get to that point where they hook you. Yeah. And so we have an opening image which will establish the world we're in. And we we'll, talked already a bit yeah, about that for we, this one. We meet the characters. Mm. We, we get uh, a bit of a conversation and something about the theme of the film mm. is brought up. We have sense of the character. We have like, yeah, some problems raised, some initial starting conditions. So in
1: Die Hard, Bruce Willis is come to town to try to, you know, win back his wife. Yes. Before they get divorced, right? So that's kind of set up.
0: Fortunately, lucky in that case, there, that's really not what the movie's about. No. (laughs) (laughs) That that wouldn't have been so good with all those teenage boys otherwise. No. (laughs) No, that really wouldn't have been. But anyway, <laughs> we have the catalyst, which is an important part of Act One. So we've once we've set everything up, we've got to have some act action or incident called the inciting incident or mm. action. I think it's the question that we want answered mm. in Act Two. Yep, and it's uh, you know it's what lets us know what this film is going to be about, mm. and that's that's what I mean. That's like the hook. That's where you could go. Oh, okay, I see where this is going. Uh-huh. Settle in. Let's see how it rolls yeah. out. Yeah, get the bag of popcorn and let's go. But, of course, we always have to have a little bit of a debate because, I mean, if you don't do it, like, let's put it this way. If you had in Blade Runner, we have, he gets arrested and taken and told there's fugitives he's got to hunt down. Hmm. Okay, so now here we go, oh, okay, now we know what this movie's going. Yeah. He If he just went, yep, sure, done, and he's in there hunting down the fugitives, and I've seen movies that do this kind of thing. Hmm. It feels cheaty yeah, or yeah, too yeah. quick or yeah. easy or like, what's what's the catch? You know, yeah, like, yeah. So instead, you've got to have this thing called the debate. The main character, or the not necessarily the main character, personally, but the story must have this question: Okay, it could go this way or it could go that way. Which way is it going to go, and why does it go into the rest of the film? And yeah. that that establishes this uh, narrative drive. Mm. You understand why we're going there mm. and why that decision was made and the fact it was a decision to do it yeah it wasn't just watching a roller coaster ride you're actually on the roller coaster ride yeah and that takes us to act two
1: yeah and I mean you're exactly right there and really the character needs to drive in us into act 2 by that debate. And their decision. Mm. So sometimes the world changes a little bit, but in a really good story, the character is deciding to take that journey and that is act two. So that's what drives us on with the story. Um, so that's where we get a section that a lot of people call the fun and ca- games or the complications rising, the stakes are raised. Um, quite often this first bit of act two is kind of like the trailer. So it is the bits that in this case, Blade Runner, you're going to have Harrison Ford running around a city futuristic gun, futuristic cars and weapons. Maybe you're going to have a girl in a bikini with a snake being chased down the road, you know. Yes. <laughs> That's the fun in games, you know, and maybe you're going to have, like, questioning robotics and not robotics and you're going to have Rook to Hull, you know, like tackling someone and, and pulling someone's eyes out and, you know, th- these are going to be the Act 2 fun bit of the film because the setup, like Sorry said, the inciting minute, the decision is, oh, we've got these four replicants, robots, Robots loose in a city and you're the only one that can hunt them down to save the day. So now we've got to have Harrison hunt them down. So that's the fun fun and games. And that shouldn't be easy and it's not easy for him. So that's what makes this interesting and you want to watch on. So there is complications. What is something that is really great as a complication in this is that the robots are, or the replicants, are so powerful that Harrison Ford is not like Arnie, where he's up against ones and he's a super strong guy, it's like, no, these robots will kill you. Oh, yeah. They're (laughs) They're military robots. Yes, but they're also just so much more powerful. It it is like fighting the Terminator. so you can't just expect to go up to them. And so what I loved in this is that he just kind of pulls out the gun and he's just going to fire on them no matter where he is because it's literally the only way to take them down. And they say that very early back in Act 1, that the only way to, to take them down is to kill them. Shoot him dead, I think is the phrase. Shoot him dead. do to be, shoot him.
0: Better to be a killer
1: than a victim. That's right. That takes us through to that midpoint. Now, the midpoint, maybe things don't go so smooth for our old main character. So he's hunting them and things just don't quite work out. And so a midpoint is that it's, it tends to be that now you've had a bit of fun hunting these replicants, but it's not going to all be working out so easily for you. And likewise, in any film or story, the midpoint they've been on this journey that they were really pushing, something needs to not quite go according to plan. And in fact, now we head into like a bit of territory, which is actually the, your plan is falling apart. Things are turning to shit. People are dying or things are dying around you, your plan actually doesn't work. So, no. scrap it, throw it out. You need to come up with a new plan, or else you will die. And, and and in other stories, maybe Blade Runner is an example where, yeah, the risk of him dying became higher and higher. But in other stories, it might also be that it's the death of an idea. You know, like the plan didn't work the dream job doesn't work out. Or winning
0: the final, Winning the
1: final, you know, game and then not actually making it to the finals. And now you can't, you're being disqualified, in fact. Mm. so, But the whole point of the movie was that we were going to get there and win the gold. Yeah, no, you can't be in the gold medal game. So now what, right? So so that's the point that gets us to that point. And those characters are sitting on the side of the road. It's raining heavily, as Rookta would say, you know, tears coming down my cheek. Um and whatever. <laughs> he he, he says <laughs> much better, though. You know? He says it much better, you know, and I'm not trying to be as good as him at the moment, but, yeah, you're sitting there in the rain and you've got no money and you've, your team's all lost and you've been disqualified, you've been kicked out of the job. Now what? Yes. And in that moment, what makes a great film is the character goes, do you know what? Let's try, bam, Act 3.
0: Let's try Act 3, which, of course, is where they, they gear up. They get their... Their inspiration clue or uh, sudden drive and motivation. Sometimes it's a connection back to the start. Sometimes, yeah, and then they they go on and they yeah, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, it, it never quite works the way they always wanted. The to first finish. hurdle. Because again, you have got to think: what if you watched a film where the guy says, "Ah, oh, so I've got to defeat this man of steel that is impervious to all bullets." Yeah, well, I'll make a kryptonite bullet and shoot him in the head. Yeah. And then the very next thing he goes out and shoots Superman in there or you're know, like the evil The credits. Dunk <laughs> and there's celebration and everyone walks home and you're like, Oh Yeah, is that it? Like, why didn't you is just that do it at the it? start? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it always has to fail. That initial yeah. plan always has to fail. And they've mm-hmm. got to do they've got to trust the force. Mm. You know, they, they they do the first pass on the exhaust ports on the you know, uh, Battle star yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's Death Star, Death not Star, Battle star Galactica. Yeah. The, the Death Star, I've got too much sci-fi on my brain. The, on the Death Star, it fails to go in there. And then it's too it's small, it's impossible. Yeah. Use the Force, Luke. Yeah. Okay, so now we, that's that's where we have to have some reversal, some new learning. Uh, and obviously the the Force is a good one. Uh, and,
1: and, and Neo is a good
0: one as well. Neo is like, a good one. See the he can now you know, like, see the Matrix. The, the Matrix. Yeah. Uh, and then they get the actual <clears throat> victory. Yeah. And then we have this closing image. So it's nice how that, that actual victory, you know, it, it can be, given up or down a little bit depending on the theme of the movie. But and then we have some closing image where it's like, uh, in contrast to the beginning, mm. this is how everything is now. Things yeah. have changed in some fashion.
1: Mm. Which there is a nice bookend for this sort of Deckard, I reckon. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it is, uh, and regardless of which version you see. There is uh, a large portion of it is still the same. Yeah, yeah, yes. So Definitely. that's and so that's the end of Act Three. So we'll we'll get into how this movie falls um, into these acts. Yeah, and well, how it breaks down.
1: Yeah. So I just want to talk a couple of stylistic things, and then we'll jump into the actual plot. So with Ridley, uh, we said those moody landscape shots. There are uh, there are plenty in this. There's so many of those like shots of the city, hmm. the opening. Mm, tra- you know, slow dolly into the city and you have those burning things and you have the flying car. Uh, the eye light. reflecting
0: the flames. Yeah, yes. you know, like,
1: like it's it's a very depressing looking place, isn't it? It's not, even though it's sort of sophisticated, it's also quite broken looking. But it,
0: it is very vibrant though.
1: There's yeah. people everywhere. Oh, there's there, there's people noise everywhere.
0: and movement yeah. and light. yeah. But, so it's like humanity still pushing forward it is but it's just not in a good spot
1: yeah it's just not in a great spot yeah that's a good one so uh, that's the other thing and what we start to see straight away and, and this is what opens the film then is lights play a really important role so it's all neon lights it's all dark shadows this film we don't see sunlight hard, hard
0: spotlights. yeah there's no sunlight shadows. in this film right
1: like it's all neon lights and hard sh- lights on people we also have fans we have like imposing fans and so it opens up and holden this man in a suit is about to interrogate leon leon walks in he sits down i had an iq test and he's oh we're gonna do this other one he brings up this light set no one seems very happy holden lights a cigarette this oh aren't there a lot of scan, cigarettes in this yeah the, the eye scan comes out the fan is like circulating really heavily in the shot which is the whole point there, um, it's the same when you go back to a really classic film, not sci-fi, but Citizen Kane, which is one of those films that people say it's like the best film ever. One thing Orson awesome Wells did with that was – he was sort of the first person to really bring ceilings into the shot, right? And so they do that in Citizen Kane, mm. and it made it all feel like tight. And I think that's what Ridley Scott's doing here is like the fan in the roof, uh, like you're feeling like, is that going to chop someone's head off? In, like, invariably,
0: like, you get that, yeah, zhup, yeah, zhup, yeah zhup, and, and, the and the light it feels oppressive, and like, yeah, there's a fan just there, just, and yeah, I know it, it adds this real feeling to it. Like if you took that up higher and. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, had a, yeah. it had a smaller, lighter fan, and you didn't have yeah. that noise. You know, you'd go, "Oh, it's, it's a, just it's, a fan. it's nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice additive." You know, and and man. it's
1: one of those things like we won't go into this much detail for the whole film, but it's one of those things that they notice fans all throughout the film. Like later, when the co- the the uh, sergeant or whatever you know, the the guy running the cop station. Like in his office, he's got like three little shitty off like desk fans really like pumping air. You can really see them, you know, and it's so, so that's what I want to say. Like there's these, all these fans everywhere. And so you've got to question when you see a filmmaker's done that, like, how is that making you feel? What's that? What's the kind of gut feeling you're getting? Like you're just saying oppressive. Like, why are we getting that? It's making the light flicker constantly, which is sort of annoying, right? But But then, but then that's the point, right? Like, that We're getting... The characters are kind of being shadow, light, shadow, light. Like, it's annoying, right? Whereas in other films, like, no, no, light them all perfectly, natural colours, all this. And so, why is he doing this? It's, it's, it's giving, it's giving a, us this a, a, weird world. a
0: wonderful, uh, what do you call it, study in the setting of scenes. So, mm. scenes that really stay with you. If you go watch any movies... You'll come across some where a particular scene really sticks with you mm. or a particular sequence of scenes and watch any of our classics that we've yeah. done and you'll get this. You'll get moments. And of what that you'll for find sure. is that you, you know, pause it and have a look at everything that's included in focus mm. in that scene. Yeah. It's there for a reason and it yeah. tells part of the story. For sure. And this is where, uh, I suppose, you know, when you're beginning Filmmaking and you don't have the budget to spend the amount of time and props and everything. Yeah, it's very hard to do. But when you do have a a six million dollar budget or what have you, yeah, you know, and you've got that time and the the vision. Mm. And Ridley Scott's renowned for having uh, a meticulous vision of how he does things. Like the movie Alien was basically a graphic novel mm. in storyboards. Yeah, yeah. Before he even started shooting, and they were detailed. Yeah. And and you get this here. So when you see a light switch on the wall that's in it, you know, you can, it's visible, it's in focus, it's because that the, the director wants you to know there's a light switch. Either it means maybe it looks to be in the on position, but it's dark. Yeah. Okay, something's broken. Maybe it's <laughs> yeah. going to be used later on. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a fan there. Why is the fan being shown? Oh, and yeah, I know. It's, this movie is full of that. Like if you want to know how to make a scene really tick. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, get yourself some money. Second, <laughs> no, you can do it without the money. That's you, the, can, you, can, you can do a lot, lot without money. You've got to make sure you choose what scenes you're trying to do. If you're yeah. trying to do a Blade Runner scene, you, you're, you're going to struggle because it it relies on detail. It does. But you, you can certainly, if you do like a normal office scene, like yeah. uh, that movie Office Space, not yeah. sci-fi, yeah. but everything in those scenes, when you see that the little post-it notes, the white-out containers, yeah. the things pinned on the walls they were all purposely chosen, selected and placed and that's put right. in a focus and shot. And, yeah, the fans in this one and, the it's like, even though you get chains, the rain, yeah. the lights, the, the spotlights flashing yeah, across everyone. that's right.
1: And it's why the crew called this film Blood Runner because they were literally donating their blood to make the film because... Ridley was whoosh, cracking the whip, I think, the whole yeah. time. But it comes out brilliant, and that's all we care about is the the, the final thing. Oh, yeah. Um, So Holden and this guy, Leon, they have this... I mean, so this is the thing. You could take the budget away, and this scene's still good because yeah. Holden is sort of like casual, I don't care, smoking. Leon is like agitated, annoyed, like, why am I doing this test? Like, And the whole point is setting us up like... You know, why are they doing this test? And, and really you get to the end of it and then there's a, there's a tent, the music builds up and he's answering it. He's like, you know, like you said, he's like, what desert? What's it? I don't know what a tortoise is, you know, tortoise is. Oh, it's like a turtle, but different. It doesn't matter. You know, like, well, if it doesn't matter, why are you asking me these questions? And they're having a real tense moment and the music drums up and then it just relaxes you know and he's like "All oh, right," and then he's oh well tell me about your mother and Leon's like oh that's it you know, I've had enough he's cracked it
0: well he says oh let, let me tell you the thing about my mother yeah. was and just but, you know yeah. like blast yeah. this
1: guy and so it sets the story in motion because we're going why the hell was this, this weird interrogation why were people so hostile Leon seemed weird. Holden seemed weird. Like, who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? That opening scene, right? Mm. And then we cut to Deckard on the street, and you said it's a vibrant street. Again, it's a dirty... Hustle, bustling, hustling city seems to have a very culturally Asian theme going on, even though we are in yeah, the States. It, the interesting maybe, thing
0: is it's, like, it's all mixed. So there's yeah, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean all going in on at the same time. Yes,
1: but again, I think it's just trying to imply that it's a future where you know the world population has really quadrupled or whatever, like we sort of talk yeah, about. It was and, a
0: bit soil and greeny. Yeah, it
1: was. But, and, um, but more vibrant. Than yeah, fruit. yeah. But he definitely has this uh, Deckard. We meet this Deckard guy. He's not happy. That's why it's a good bookend at the end. The one I watched that then he's kind of happy taking a risk, whereas it feels like he's just moping around the place. Yeah, in, at this? The,
0: in the start, you, you kind of, you don't really know what he's doing. He's, yeah. He said he's, uh, you know, he's quit being a Blade Runner. Yeah. But so, then what but, is he doing? What is he doing now? He's just yeah. kind of... Haggling for noodles yeah. like
1: <laughs> And and I mean this is one of those things that I know like Blake Schneider, the screenwriter, talks about like if he just keeps living the life he's on, mm. right, and this story doesn't happen or he doesn't take the decisions that lead him into this story, is he's li- is he just sort of destined for death anyway?
0: Yeah. You know, is
1: there is he is he living a life worth living, sorry. Ah, you know? Okay. And so this is a good scriptwriting or writer's technique as well, is to think is my character actually making the right decisions to live, you know, the life that you want to explore in your story? And is it just leading to, well, he could just die anyway and it doesn't matter? Yeah. Or yeah. does it matter? And in this case, well, it does matter because the next thing you know, he's getting a bit of a tap-tap on the shoulder. You're under arrest. And Gaff, this weird police officer, doesn't speak English. Apparently. 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 Uh, with a cane as well. So, like, little, nice little bits of detail there, isn't there? Um, But what he's doing is he's just dragging him down to the
0: captain, really. Taking him down to the captain. And I did get a lot of soil and green from this film, actually. You know, like, the whole scene with the captain where it's, like, sort of this crummy thing with the fans going and uh, he's a sweaty, uncomfortable captain. and and Crowded office. Yeah, the the captain's not wearing a uniform and he's just kind of a little Pulls out
1: booze again. Yeah, he's a
0: bit slimy looking. You know, he's just... (laughs) It's the same sort of feeling I yeah. got from Soil and Green. And he even makes that same comment of, yeah, if you're not one of the police, you're just one of the little people. Yeah,
1: yeah. What you get yeah. in
0: Soil and Green was like, if you're not a cop, you're,
1: you're, you know, a you're,
0: you're unemployed, yeah. basically. And you don't get to walk in a place and just take everything. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, I mean, it didn't raise the stakes, I guess, sorry, when you do compare it to Soil and Green there, that why was Descartes so disenchanted, but then what was he actually doing?
0: Well, um, If he this, can just
1: afford noodles all the time, well, then it maybe doesn't
0: matter. Well, see, at this point in the film, it doesn't make much sense. And so when I... As I said, I've seen this film twice prior to this, back when I was like maybe, as I said, about 30-ish years ago. Mm. And I was, I think, too young to consider it and wasn't interested in a movie that would require anything other than... Thinking. ...seeing explosions and, Explosion. and that sort of thing. So, Big guns. But when I was watching this time here, I'm I, sorry... People kept talking about was Deckard a a replicant, and yeah. I'm, I remember watching, thinking, going, "No, yeah, he's yeah. just a cop," and yeah. that's why it was a boring movie. Watching it this time, of course, uh I was thinking, if I were to let's entertain the fact that there is a um this theme of is Deckard a replicant, mm. you start looking at this opening scene, and yeah, he's he's an ex-cop and all the rest of it, and why is this gaff guy arresting him and bringing him down? And mm. the way the chief talks to him is a little bit kind of side-eyed. Mm. It's like, yeah, we're going to get you back on. You're know, like, and you're thinking maybe, maybe he never was a cop beforehand. Yeah. He yeah. just remembers it. And maybe the chief has just been told mm. he was a cop yep. by Tyrell Corp. Basically yep. saying, ah, oh, yes, to track these guys down, you want to use this cop. You Because know, the, the argument being that uh, Deckard is a Nexus 6 more like uh, Rachel. Yeah. And he could have just been created six months prior hmm. for the express purpose of let's make a Blade Runner who is a replicant hunting down replicants. Yeah. Uh, because then we can just make them want to do that. Yeah. We and can use- program them to do it.
1: And use the memories of a Blade Runner.
0: Yeah, yeah, was, yeah and so so this scene I think pay, plays a lot more uh, is you know sensibly mm. if you're taking this from it because I remember I was, I was watching it here this time through, and the the chief is kind of yeah you don't get a strong bond between these people it, no. it doesn't he doesn't feel particularly familiar with Deckard mm. but he's just saying you know you've got this you've got a record and and you know we we. We think you're the best person for it. Mm. And then, you know, now I'm sort of thinking, he's probably just told about Deckard and given a fake reference going, oh, yeah, I mean, okay, I don't know anything about this guy, but sure, we'll get him in. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's suspicious of him. He arrests mm. him to bring him in. He talks to him a little bit suspiciously. You know, he's sort of sideways looking at him askance, not so... So, yeah, I I think that's that's something you get from watching later in this film mm where you start getting these questions raised about whether Deckard is a replicant or not. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's interesting. And this is the catalyst, I'm pretty sure, is where... It yeah. Because yes. his, his ordinary life, the opening image of him is, yeah, haggling for noodles and just kind of slumming it. And you're not really yeah. sure. He's just kind of existing. Yeah. And then suddenly it's, here's this thing that's going to change this you. This
1: exciting venture.
0: Yeah, there's the six replicants escaped. Two of them have been, you know, neutralised through their, uh, you know, various misadventures. Uh, but four of them, you know, and they've killed twenty three people or something like. They're just marching through the the world, killing people. It's not surprising. They're military robots yeah, yeah. designed to kill. What do you yep. think? They're a hammer. Everyone looks like a nail. You know, it's just <laughs> every situation becomes pretty obvious to solve for them.
1: So it's a clear catalyst for the main character come back and be. The Blade Runner you always will be, you know, like yeah. come back to the force, come on. Yeah, do you it. Know, do it. Have a drink.
0: And isn't this just like the fifth element? Yeah. Except the fifth element is spoofing a bit of Blade Runner. Yeah. It's, it's the other city way, likewise he's haggling for noodles yeah. with the dragon boat guy. Yeah. Uh, but it's a bright, you know, colourful right. mess of a city. Yes. The real dark bits down below the fog. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like like below the fog. That's where the Blade Runner. That's right. World that's that's is. the Blade Runner world. <laughs> and they're up, up upstairs a bit. So, they are. But so you yeah, go watch Fifth Element again if you have.
1: So, so you mentioned a lot about that debate. So his debate here is that he doesn't really want to do it, but then he will do it. So that that's kind of a very clear debate. Yeah. But then, but then the debate is actually to me that he goes to the tyrant. He's agreed mm-hmm. to do it. And he go, so he go. The first step is to go to the Tyrell Corporation. To well, he's he's
0: agreed to at least meet Tyrell. Yeah, yeah.
1: So like, yeah, reluctantly do it. But see, we've seen there's a lot of other cop movies. This is where it's following a cop genre. Mm. It could be a murder mystery, you know, like there's these back or the, or bank robbery, a heist movie, and we need to bring in Dirty Harry back onto the force to kind of you know, you're the best at hunting these kind of guys, oh, yeah. right? And so it's the same sort of story beats. Bring it back. Let's get you back on. Give you a badge back. And then you can just go for it. We want we want you back. We sort of need some Dirty Harry tactics, right? We need the best Blade Runner in this case. So bring him back. And he's kind of like, eh, I don't really want to do it, but I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it for a glass of whiskey. And so he brings him back. So he goes to the Tyrell Corporation. But this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's like, Beyond the beauty of that t- pyramid, and I mean, first of all, a pyramid, right? Like, yeah, I know the there's a metaphor there. It, it
0: looks very Egyptian, Aztec. Yeah. It's got the, um, in fact, it's sort of an, an Egyptian sort of shape. It's got all the Aztec, you know, detailing, yeah, detailing like this, yeah. all throughout this film. So there's, yeah. um, it's an empire, almost like, like a stone think... carving thing. It's yeah. and and they tower above. The rest of the city. They do.
1: Yeah. And as I said, they actually the model was nine feet tall, which is massive. It doesn't need no models don't need to be that big, but they deliberately made it very big. And we also start to see a lot of the city with those neon signs on the side of buildings. Enjoy Joy Coca-Cola. And Joy Coca-Cola, a bit of cash cash cha-ching there. Um Atari is in Atari, it. Atari,
0: we should be sponsored by Atari. I, Akai?
1: You remember Akai? Akai? I don't know so if they're still around. Pan Probably Am. Are. Pan Am. <laughs> um so there's quite a few brands actually throughout this. So, and but the thing with Tyrell is he explains that Nexus 7, what's it all about. But this is what's most important here, and I think this is what draws Deckard more in is Rachel. So, this idea of te- do the, Tyrell says, do the test on Rachel, because she's a human. I want to see you do the test on a human. And so he starts to do it, and it's pretty evident she's not a human.
0: Now, did you see the blooper so in this scene? The what? Uh, I don't know about whether they digitally fixed it in other versions, but mm. the theatrical release I was watching, the scene plays out There's a, a camera that's kind of off a bit and there's a bit of a pillar obscuring a bit of the, the scene. And Deckard has his suitcase, you know, where the, mm. the Void kampf machine is in it. Yep. Opens the suitcase and then he just mimes. take The machine's already on the desk. Yeah. He mimes taking the machine out. There's nothing in his hands. Oh, there's a goof. And he there? puts it down. Yeah, And I, I actually rewound I went, what the? And I rewound and watched it and went, that's a really good mime. But yeah. he just, it's like he's just, I'm wondering, and I'd love it, Ridley, if you want to come on the show and talk to us. I'm wondering, was that like a rehearsal take? Mm-hmm. Like they just were taking various takes of it. And it was, you know, because uh, the machine was really out. So he must yeah. have previously, maybe previously extracted it. Or maybe maybe the machine itself was the prop was a bit shonky yeah, it like, and it wouldn't don't fit you. in the case or they went, yeah, don't move it. Like yeah. it sits just pre- there. Just
1: pretend like you've pulled it Yeah, out. and so
0: we just, pre- uh, yeah, oh, yeah. that really got me. I, I just, so if you're going to go back, go back and watch it. And that yeah, scene, I don't think that was
1: in the version I saw. The
0: scene where he's taken the suit the, uh, out of the suitcase, like they're in the sort of the distance and the foreground is like a pillar and a chair and stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's only, a, it's only a small character on the screen. Mm, but interesting. But definitely miming it
1: there is the we talked about they said in the original version the sergeant whatever says there's six replicants and yes. one was one died trying to get to Tyrell yes. right but then in this in the last version they say two died because if you do the maths
0: there's oh, still I, another one well i thought i thought one <laughs> of them was caught in the screening. No,
1: but that's a dubbed over line of dialogue. Oh, okay.
0: Actually, so in, I the original, were... in the
1: original, in the original version, original. they actually say he says like there's six and one died getting yeah, to so, die. so there's there's five, but then Deckard only gets four.
0: Yeah, so I was <laughs> uh there's actually a couple of scenes here where but, voices have been dubbed in yeah. like you know automatic dialogue replacement yeah, type yeah. thing and if you look carefully, there's it's the lip-syncs a bit out or you know, it's yeah, a bit, something
1: changes. So, it's a bit yeah, different. but anyway, so, um, with Rachel, it's kind of evident she's not. So, the break into two, what what do you think then was the break into the second act after he sees Rachel and Tyrell? What, what kind of takes him on this journey?
0: Uh, I think it was definitely the fact that he was intrigued by Rachel mm. having memories, yeah. And, uh, if I get my, um, but look at my notes to see the exact timeline, because this mm. is always a problem when you're remembering these films. Yeah, back. I know. You, you try to go the exact because one scene is out, so. Uh, let me see. Is uh, choosing he meets Rachel. Uh, Rachel has memories. Deckard is intrigued by the idea. He's sympathetic to replicants. We can mm. tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it's that case. Where he finds out that she's a replicant, but doesn't know it, mm. and that she has memories, and right. suddenly, and again, this is one of those. But ones, she doesn't want
1: to know. She doesn't want to agree with that, does she? No. Yeah.
0: And suddenly, you're thinking. As I said later on, there's more hints on this, but mm. you've got to think: what is Deckard thinking about his own memories? And it does. Is seem- he wondering? Hang on. If a replicant can now have memories. Mm. Because probably up to this point he's probably gone yeah, Replicants can't, have don't have, really yeah you know, they've got four years. That's as many memories as they've got. Yeah. But she had memories of you know being childhood. Yeah. And so he's got to think, and, and you've got to think yourself if you're suddenly confronted with this, you go, oh well, hold on, I've got memories from childhood. She's convinced they're real, they're her memories, but I am convinced that she's actually a robot. So it's a good complication
1: that then. I think on a simple level for his quest or his, his yeah, his quest, it's like, oh, these guys aren't... The simple way to read this film is like, well, then he's going, ooh, the bad guys are smarter than what you think. Mm. They can form memories and they might have been implanted, but that means they think like a human. Yeah. And so I think on the simplistic version of this film, you could just say, well, then him as the detective is like, oh, I've got to really think... Like, this is juicier now. Yeah, this is Maybe, a maybe he then quit being a Blade Runner because it's kind of boring for him. He could catch robots yeah, and to, kill them.
0: destroy them. But machines. then now it's
1: like, oh, they're a little bit more sophisticated. This is dangerous. I need to kind of... I'm intrigued by that. Mm. You know, and so to me, that kind of drives that... It's like a second punch to the story. I,
0: I think also he's got to try and... Like So he's confused by, confronted by Rachel mm. and her existence. Yeah, yeah. And it's like he has to catch these it's other Blade Runners. It's a puzzle. The other Blade Runners. These other blades? Yeah. Replicants, yeah, <laughs> these skin jobs. Uh, and in previous times, he would have been the sort of, yeah, but he's got to try and catch these... Um, Replicants. I was gonna call them blades again. Re- replicants. Replicants. And interestingly enough, uh, the server technology in um, operate, you know, in data centers are called you know blade servers that you get. But anyway, he's got to try and catch these guys to almost to try and prove that no, they are just machines. Mm. That what I have been doing is not murder, yeah, execution, but rather I have been, you know destroying malfunctioning machines. Yeah. So I would say there's also a bit of that there where he's going to try and... Justify. Yeah, disprove what Rachel has... The conundrum Rachel has put forward, He's got to try and disprove that and go like, Rachel's the only one. Yeah. These these other ones, they are just malfunctioning.
1: Yes. And so the B story then in this act too is Rachel does turn up. She's She's kind of going to become the love interest. She's the... But beyond the love interest, she's the kind of question. like Because she's she's not going around killing people. She's going, but hang on, if I'm a robot, then that makes everything in my life fake. But then what's real, what's fake? So it's the deeper question of who they are, isn't it? And whether we should just be destroying them. So we jump into those fun and games in the second act. And um, we have the Pris, or Pris comes up and she pretends to kind of like jump into these... And she looks like a good old 1980s American street hooker, doesn't she? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Junkie, whatever. She, she rocks up. She jumps in these kind of like a homeless person, like under uh, newspapers, whatever. This guy stumbles out of his car and she kind of deliberately then hops up. And so we can see that she's had some sort of plan. They kind of flirt a little bit. She flirts a bit with him. Revealing that she doesn't really have people or money or anything like that, and he invites her into the apartment.
0: Yeah, and we get we also see so. Well, this I'm wondering here if we are getting some variations in the scene ordering mm. because I got from the uh, Australian <coughs> Act Two, mm. we see the replicants. So we see. Dec, um, Roy and Leon hmm. go to the eye doctor. I
1: oh, know that happened. Sorry. Yeah. So I've jumped oh, over okay. that. Yes. Yeah. That happened before that scene.
0: Yeah. yeah so they, so yeah. they go to the eye doctor and question him.
1: Yeah. And he about, reveals. And he says,
0: I, I just made your eyes. Yeah. But, you know, your brains were the result of J.F. Sebastian. Sebastian. Yeah. 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 And that's where we get Pris. Yes. And we discover that this guy that she's uh, sort of sweet talked. Yeah introduces himself as J.F. Sebastian. Yeah,
1: so it's a nice little segue, and it suggests that they've planned that, isn't it? Like, they, Leon and Roy confronted the eye maker and then found that information. And this whole way, like, we end up in J.F. Sebastian. His apartment is, first of all, like, when before getting inside, that building, the lights, the shadows... All those kind of like it's like spotlights coming the through water. and just illuminate. There's water on the that's floor. That's a that's a
0: real building. The Bradbury yeah, that's the Bradbury
1: apartments. Is,
0: yeah. yeah, and I saw some photos of the the real interior. Yeah, and it is the staircase and so forth. Yeah, that yeah, it you is, go up. Yeah. I can see why he chose it because it, it looks like a cyberpunk staircase. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> you, you just yeah, you know, whack a bit of a, a brownish filter on it, and some golden light on there, and then you. Mm. And those lights
1: coming in from outside sort of thing. So, again, it's no sunlight. We're just getting these like powerful Uh, artificial And and
0: here's one of the things we're talking about. The themes are, um, and we've brought this up any number of times, but water, of course. Mm. So, they walk up, they get to the top of the landing, and they splash in the puddle. And JF, he says, oh, sorry, be careful of the water. Yeah. And it's reflecting them. Mm. And so, again, you go, okay, we're now moving into some sort of like this is a, a crossing point yes this is like you know life death yeah um spirit world real world yeah and indeed we go into his apartment yep and there's these little machines like little yeah. androids like comical clown faced guys yeah. marching about the place and they're you know they bump into the walls and they're, it's like, <laughs> and they're not perfect they're not super intelligent like no. not even as smart as dogs they no. they just kind of march about and yeah, it's sort of a. Uh, it is like a spirit world. There's a bit of a dream world there yeah. with mannequins, bit of circus, and isn't it? yeah, circus is sort of yeah. thing. And so that that's kind of that. I think that water is the segue mm. into this yeah. other world we're going to enter. And it
1: felt to me like she'd. You know, you you as the audience know there's danger for him because they're trying to get to Tyrell. But then in this crazy circus world, and even the way he was, suddenly it felt. I don't know, they felt like they were on the same page a bit more.
0: Yeah, they, they you know, did feel like, that way. Yeah, Particularly yeah. when you see he has Methuselah Syndrome or whatever yeah, it is, which means yeah. he ages rapidly. Yes. There's kind of, oh, there's, a, there's kinship here. Yeah. The difference is, though, he's got very strong memories mm. and he's you know fully formed, as it were. I like on that puddle of water, though, looking at that, as again, one of those examples that that puddle was included. They didn't have to include the water. They could have shot a bit higher and not mm. shown it and just heard a little splash and not yeah. made much of a point. But a point was made of it. you could see it there. It was done for a reason and I love I love it when you get these scenes and you can look at them and as they play out, it all feels right yeah and that's that's what that scene does for me there. So,
1: Deckard goes to the apartment, the hotel room that Leon had been
0: at. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, good old cop following the pathway. And and flicks the light
0: till it turns on. Yeah.
1: And... and looks around and is pretty dingy and gaffs there with him. And they're sort of, you know, looking around. He discovers those photos, like this bunch of photos, but doesn't discover much else. Mm. And we actually then see Leon and, and he finds
0: that sn- the scale oh,
1: that's right and that's the other thing he finds like a scale thing he puts into a little baggie and um and and that's about it really and we see outside that Leon's watching and with Roy Roy's like did they did you did you get your photos yeah. your precious photos yeah. and he's like mm, you know I like my photos <laughs> yeah. and back at Deckard's apartment you he's kind of you know, zoning in. And I can't quite exactly remember what he's doing, but then he's like, he goes to that piano and he starts playing the piano.
0: He's he's sitting there with his head on the piano and there's all heaps of photos. Yeah,
1: and that's the odd thing. When you say that is he a replicant, those photos, especially later with Rachel, when you can kind of see them a little bit further back, they're quite antique kind of styled Mm. photos, which is odd, isn't it? Like, it'd be like you... Or me having photos of, like, a great-great-grandparent.
0: Yeah. it's And they were Deckard's photos. Yeah. Which is why you're thinking... Yeah, like and this is that, have- that subtext that he's got a pile of the photos from the replicant. Yeah. And then he's got these other photos and the music sheet up. Yeah. And he's and you've got to think to yourself, why does he have a piano?
1: Yeah, for a detective. With
0: sheet music. Where yeah. did he learn to read sheet music? That's really yeah. weird. It
1: seems out of character for and him. And he's got
0: these old photos. And he's... <laughs> He's seen the photo of Rachel supposedly with her mum. Mm. And here you're getting that sense, which I never, again, as a little teenager, I didn't yeah. pick this stuff up, but I'm looking at it now going, now I'm seeing what people are saying about yeah, yeah. is Deckard a replicant? Because here yeah. he's got his photos and he's, there's this a similarity of being drawn yeah. here. It's like... How come I've got these photos white? like? And he's on a piano. Why does yeah. he have a piano, for crying out loud?
1: And he daydreams of a white unicorn. Yeah, so
0: this is the new scene in the director's cut. Yeah. He has yeah. his little unicorn dream.
1: Which, side note, Ridley likes to have white horses and have shots. So if you're really keen on this, go online, have a little bit of look. Probably pretty easy. I found a montage in a lot of Ridley's films, since Blade Runner, he's had the white horse Yeah, I think, I think I've think i seen and one in Gladiator. It's quite a similar. He's got it in Gladiator, and I haven't seen it, but I think is it the recent sort of Matt Damon, Matt Damon's in it or something, Ben Affleck, that Ridley did. There's another white horse, and they're almost very similar shots to this mm. one in Blade Runner where the horse kind of, you know, it's in a forest or it's in a field, and it does a bit of a hook gallop. Yeah. <laughs> so what I mean is it goes like left to right in the shot, Which is very visual, you know, like what you would do with a camera and and staging a horse. But it's interesting that he's got that in a lot of his films. God knows what it means to him, but it obviously has some sort of connection for him. But in this film, it's kind of like a daydream, isn't it? Like the white unicorn.
0: And I like the symbolism of unicorns. chasing
1: the white unicorn, chasing the fantasy.
0: I mean, a unicorn is, and we still use the term today for the same reasons, like when we're talking about the 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 tech startup that goes from nothing to a billion dollars super quick like in a year or yeah, two is
1: the uni- they're
0: they're they're unicorn uh, startups yeah because they they've just suddenly cracked this billion dollar mark yeah. that's not a normal thing it's no. that's it's as rare as a unicorn yeah and i i think this film uh, there's also a unicorn statue or toy in jf sebastian's hall yeah. which again is this play on you know Descartes has this unicorn dream did does that have something to do with JF Sebastian and his obviously enjoys a unicorn mm. but I also like it's just the unicorn is Rachel is yeah. the unicorn Yeah Rachel's the unicorn because right? uh, she's an ex of six that believes she's a human mm. and is almost yeah. almost it took like hundreds of you know questions to catch her out enough yeah. to realize that she wasn't a uh, human.
1: Yeah, and then now she's realising she's not a human. What does she do? Which is interesting. Like mm. she's, she's thinking through this problem, right? Like, But she's also they're not just going around killing people. <laughs> so, she uses the unicorn. Yes. Yeah. So, and then anyway, he has a bath and he's looking at the pictures and he's looking at the scale. This
0: is the famous enhance. Enhance. Enhance.
1: Enhance, which yeah. is still not possible to do this no. to this quality.
0: In- um, interesting, though... They're getting there's there's some very good computer yeah. programs now which will manufacture detail out of very little but yeah. they're they're making the detail it's not there that's not there because're using artificial intelligence to figure out what it would probably be like yeah. or what would seem reasonable to be there
1: and that that is okay I can accept that as someone mm. that knows cameras and film this has always been something that i've I, I go with it I go yeah. with it but it's always like... It's impossible to do that. And I I still remember, like, seeing this as a teenager when I understood cameras as, like... I think it was actually an episode of The X-Files and they zoomed in and then they clear the focus. And I'm like, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you take the photo and it's out of focus, you can't clear it. You can clean it. You can't clear it. And then I remember the... (laughs) Uh, Under Siege 2 with Steven Seagal. And at the start of that, there's like, it's absolutely ridiculous to talk about teenage boys, but at the start of that, there's a satellite image and they zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. And then they like focus an image on the beach and it's a woman with her top off. And talk about targeting teenage boys, start the film with, you know, boobs. And um, I'm like, you can't do that. You cannot do that on a photo.
0: No if if the like if that detail was not originally captured no, it, not, you can't, can't find it there no
1: Anyway <laughs> but in this film he's zooming in and you know he's zooming in and he's zooming in but I did like that cool like I, I thought it was a really nice sci-fi touch, hey, that they, you know, like grid forty-four to seventy-two or whatever, and it's like do 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 do, you know, like and it it's was so eighties.
0: It was also the very way that conversational. It that. Yeah, yeah, like he, just, yeah, he doesn't use the same commands. No, he says, no. "Yeah, move right, move stop, stop and back and open." Yeah, yeah, like and you go, "What? What does all that mean?" Like,
1: but it, it makes sense, right? Like, because that would be a simple like speak into Siri now yeah. on Apple, but it's like if you think you can create a Nexus Six, yes. yes. That walks around and does thinking and emotions yeah, and has memories. I mean, Google surely home you could. Your yeah, will be pretty, be pretty sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. So surely you could say, yeah, bring up a photo of me when I was five and zoom in on the person in the back and actually go across ways. And that's like, you know.
0: Yeah. So it gets this picture of the, the woman a with woman in some the sort butt. of tattoo you can't quite make out. Yeah. But there's, there's a dark patch on the side of her and face. And print it and it's a Polaroid. Yes,
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is very millennial. I've got one of those little printers. I got one of them recently. Uh,
0: my wife's got a, a little Polaroid camera yeah. thing. Yeah,
1: they're awesome. Um, so then he he takes the scale. He's got that image of the woman. Takes the scale thing, and he asks at a local um, fish market. Down the China Lab, whatever. Yeah. Um, is it fish? And she looks. No, no, a snake. You know, and, and it's artificial. It's got a code on it, like a, a creator's code. And so then he like walks through the markets again, this busy, hostile, vi- it is very vibrant, but again, it's very, you know, there's tubes and there's pipes and there's smokes and there's bright lights and there's fans again. And, you know, there's people everywhere. And, you know, like it's a crowded space to be in. Um, reminded me a lot of like Bangkok, going kind to of somewhere like that, like a city like that. And the roads all disrupted and, yeah, but there's like millions of people around you, you know, and and traffic, there was a great shot there where, He's kind of basically walking faster than the cars. Yes yeah, You know, yeah. like like which is a big city thing. Right?
0: Uh, I, I think the thing says, Yeah, don't walk. If yeah. It's saying yeah, don't walk, <laughs> don't, walk, don't walk, don't walk. And people are walking walk because yeah. the cars aren't moving.
1: Yeah. And uh, anyway, so he, the snake he, you see him, you don't even follow him in, but he's got this snake dealer,
0: doesn't he? Like Yeah, with the his, guy in like, the
1: bar with his Yeah. And um and then and then he and then he goes across who's led him to this more nightclub place, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so go in there, and he tries to harass a businessman or something. Yeah, he
0: bought the snake.
1: He yeah. bought the snake, and he's kind of not giving him much. So then he starts drinking heavily himself, and calls Rachel out for a night out. Come on, just come out to the bar. And oh, Rachel, Rachel goes, no, I don't want, like, I don't want to come to a bar. And poor old. Deckard's rejected, you know, so uh, goes back oh. to drinking more heavily,
0: right? Not in my version, uh, but so, the version so I like, watched.
1: No. Yeah, anyway, so that, that's the scene that happens for me. And then the woman comes out on stage and she does her dance with the snake yeah. kind of briefly. And um, you don't see much of that. And then, in fact, I don't even think you saw much of it at all. It was more sort of off camera. And then, uh, and then he's, and then 40's hanging out in the corridor with the paper. And um, she walks past, and he puts on this show about being a um, uh, like a union rep for yeah. you know for
0: performers. Have you been in weird little, little nerdy voice? Yeah, he yeah,
1: puts on a stupid nerdy voice and uh, looks around the place. And she's a bit suspicious, but seems a bit harmless. And I want to I want to just say something here as well because then there's a mention of the snake being real, and she's like, "God, oh, you know, it's a robotic snake. If I could afford a real snake, you know, do you, do think, you think I'd be, I'd working be like here? working here?" But what I wanted to just stop for a second is another motive in this film is wild animals, because like we said, the unicorn, unicorns are oh I don't know are they, are they made up or are they real? I don't know uh, but
0: well my unicorn's real.
1: <laughs> your unicorn's real. There's that great movie, um, my my unicorn, but the yeah, the, the, the thing is earlier in the film, you've got in the captain's office, he's kind of got like the wild savannah. Right, so in that crowd, there's a, like a picture of the wild savannah. Deckard has a picture of a rhino in the background. Oh, does he? When he went to the snakes, there's a moment where he sort of stops on the street and two ostriches come
0: by. Yeah, they've heard the ostriches um,
1: There's the owl, the, you know, the, owl. The, the, yeah. the robotic owl that's kind of quite exotic. So it's kind of like game animals are in this film as a bit of a motive as well, which mm. I guess if you're like... You could really... I'm bringing on my film art school here. Like, you could really break it down, like, robots versus things that live or something, right? Yeah. And, and y- even though most you know,
0: the juxtaposition of the ostriches being herded through yeah. a super busy yeah. street full of markets and things. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, is it definitely... You know, and there's mentioned a lot of fish. There's a lot of fish, fish, fish. You know, and stuff. So, so you know, like like animals, living creatures, I suppose. So and I,
0: I I think this is where we're coming to the midpoint.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're things things very turn. Close. So
0: we've had all of the fun and games. He's done his detective work. We've seen him, you know, follow some clues. Uh, he he sort of uh, we've seen a bit of the bad guys doing a few things to let us know what they're up to.
1: Well, yeah. So. He finds her, he confronts her. So just when he's putting on his nerdy little voice, she actually then beats him up and yeah. it reveals that she's a, a replicant because she just beats him up badly, right? Like really quickly. He hunts her down that crowded street, shoots her. It's a big, epic shooting scene. She runs through 10 glass
0: <laughs> windows smash, in the version of
1: Smash, 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 Smash. And he keeps firing as well, like,
0: tushy. she's It's dead. back with the good old bloody squibs yeah. going off. And she had this wonderful transparent coat, was, so the yeah. blood just...
1: Blood just sprayed it. And it So, to great. me, sorry, like, that's that's all still fun and games. Yeah. And then she's dead, and the police are all there, and he's like, I'm a Blade Runner. They're like, oh. And then that gaff... Is it gaff, or is it the captain... One of them says, "Rocks up and is oh, yeah."
0: Gaff just leads him over to the
1: captain. That's in the right. Car. It's the captain. Then the ca- and this is the midpoint to me because he says to him, "Rachel has escaped." Oh yeah, and now you don't have. You still have four replicants.
0: Yeah, you've still got four replicants. Yeah, and yeah. he's like,
1: "What? I just killed one." And it's like, "No, Rachel's escaped. Yeah. You have to kill her." Which, to me, you see that's a midpoint because yes. we know. He's got feelings for Rachel, or he's like sympathetic or a- empathetic and, to and her. And it's
0: amplified as well because like, the chief drives off. Yep. And he, Deco looks up and there's Rachel, there's Rachel in yeah. the background, and she Perfect. turns and walks off. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, a second kick to the guts because yeah. she just I, heard that yeah. he's supposed to hunt her down. Now. Yeah.
1: So and he sort of does, right? So to yeah. me, that's the and He 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 wanders after her, and with that, he's confronted by Leon, and Leon starts to beat the living shit out of him and it knocks his gun away, and he's got him, and he sort of throws him around, and it, 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 he's saying, I'm going to kill you, and it's the best way to get rid of a Blade Runner. He should have said, I want my full back. Yes, no, no, <laughs> But, you know, he's starting to beat him. He's, he's overpowered him, and with that, his head explodes, and Rachel has fired the gun.
0: Yes, blasted it.
1: So it's a nice surprise, that. So it's definitely bad guys closing in because... And it's like, oh, well, does he kill Rachel? Or so whatever? now he's only
0: got three to kill. That's now he's only got good.
1: three to kill. She's killed one. Great. Back at their apartment, they're both licking their wounds, and it's a really kind of intimate scene. That because he's like, yeah, I'm shaking. Are you got the shakes? And they kind of drink heavily. He passes out. She plays on the piano. Yeah, this which is... wakes him back up, and and she explains like, is it my memory? I don't remember learning to play piano, or is it just these implant memories? Yes. Yeah. And
0: and, and that I think also is where she asks have you ever taken that Voigt camp Yeah test? Yes, she does. Yeah, so he He doesn't answer. He it, doesn't actually. answer he, it, he, he lies back and, and pretends passed. to sleep. Yeah. And and she plays a bit of piano and he comes up and she says, Yeah, like the implants up which again makes you think, Okay, he's avoided that Voigt camp test. So I'd say no, he probably hasn't. Mm. Uh, and Or well, maybe he has, but it was inconclusive. Or And then you're wondering, well, why does he have a piano? Yeah. Is this something, like another symbol telling us that, you know what, the special Nexus 6s... Uh, we, we All have piano memories. Well, <laughs> her memories come from Terrell's niece, niece yeah. who could play piano, apparently. Yeah. So you're wondering, did Deckard get memories which included just... He's just like, Terrell's just going, oh, this one from my niece... These ones work from my niece because, you know, they're non-gendered. And then these ones here from some other Blade Runner. You yeah, know, so the yeah. story goes on. So you've got to wonder then, oh, how come he has a piano? Like Because it is, why would this Blade Runner know it how to play piano? It doesn't make sense he a
1: Blade No, yeah, it doesn't. And Not it, just
0: play piano, but like with complicated sheet music. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, not, he's not just sort of playing, uh, it's not just a decorative piece. There's actual sheet music you know it takes uh, it's literacy you've got to learn yeah. how to read sheet music it's not that easy and doesn't he say something along here like uh,
1: i can't remember the exact line but he says something like i'm like the music the music came to me in a dream or something doesn't he doesn't he say something like that like because she goes she asked him the question like you play piano but he doesn't actually answer he goes oh like the music came to me in a... He says some line the version I saw is something like that. I probably should have written it down, but it was very... Like, he wasn't answering her question directly and it was trying to set us up as an audience of a bit like, what, like...
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the, what do you call it, problematic Mm. scenes, which is a very typical of an 80s film or a noir detective film, which is he... I mean, by today's standards oh, yeah. and understanding, he sexually assaults Rachel. <laughs> he does.
1: yeah, Because... the Me Too movement all over. Yeah, here. well,
0: because this is like, you know, he slams the door shut and, and pushes her back and intimidating her, really. Yeah, well,
1: because he tries to kiss her. She's not interested. Yeah, she has no that. consent, right?
0: And then he then he, then he then, look, kind of gives her this weird look. and yeah. like, It's almost like a, an intimidation. Yeah,
1: and then she... So she leaves and he like slams the door and actually slams her back. Yeah. Like he pushes her back against that grill and <laughs> literally says to her, you tell, tell me you want this. Yeah. You know, and she I goes, was. oh, I want it. So- I,
0: I kind of didn't like it, but I was going... I, it's It's following... In the 80s, this was not an uncommon... The mm. idea it's supposed to be showing, as opposed to what it kind of is showing, it's supposed to be showing that there's two characters who don't express themselves well. Yeah. But they both... Know they want each other, yeah. And so it sort of takes this. It's often also you get the ones where the two characters have an argument, 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 and then you know one goes to slap the other, but they catch the hand and they look at each other, yeah. And then they start kissing, they start like me. as if that would ever happen in real yeah, life. Yeah, that's right. But it, the I think the idea is supposed to be that sort of thing. That there's a tension there, and it takes kind of a it takes a real effort for someone to break through that barrier that they both have. In order to get, but I've seen it done better in more modern films mm. where there is kind of that tension and there's that sort of... But it's two-way kind of, not aggressive sexually, but as in there's a two-way sort of... They're, they're, they're looking a bit fighty and then they break down and go, you know what, it's not anger I'm feeling. It's not... It's actually... Yeah. I, I just don't know how to express myself. and Well, see, I suppose
1: in the modern context, what could have happened is... Yeah, he could have tried to kiss her and she rejected him and then she walked to the door and instead of him like slamming the door, like lent on the door and then she pulls it and he lets go because like, yeah. you know, well, you know, I'll let you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually
0: her. stopping yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> actually
1: stopping you. And then, and because I think I have seen this, I don't know which film, but there's like she could open the door and then like she slams it.
0: Yeah, and turns And, and then turns and just, around
1: and then like... Goes well. Why do I, you know, why do you have to be confronted to me? Why can't we, you know? And they kind of talk, like you just said, as characters that can't talk. One of them leads that conversation, and then that leads to kissing, and you know, blah yeah. blah. Yeah. So it might be a bit more natural, whereas what came across here is it's a little bit rapey, rapey. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a little bit on. Its <laughs> but way. the con—you have to have a look at the context. You know, I mean, you go back into older Hollywood films and. You know Clint Eastwood grab, or you know, in some of those classic, especially nineteen fifties, they're like the man would grab the woman and yank them towards them, yeah. you know, and and kind of literally hold their head to their mouth. Yeah. You know? so so it is context. You're there also going to
0: wonder though, she's a robot. Mm. Where do her rights start? <laughs> I mean, that there's another thing yeah. here, is that you've, cause it? Because it seems that in this world, you can shoot replicants. Yeah, he's
1: allowed to just kill them.
0: So, you know, I don't know. It's it's not, as I said, it's a bit problematic and, and you do have to look It's it's not as bad as, there's some films where no, it's, it's really worse. cringy, yeah. sort of like, yeah. oh my it's God. It's
1: not totally cringy.
0: But now. yeah, you, you do have to realise that this was <laughs> uh, a common movie trope, you know, despite it not being um, yeah, palatable I, these I,
1: days. And we don't, I mean, again, there's a glorification of that. We don't see awkward you know, it's implied that then they make love or whatever, but and it's all a bit awkward, as we've just said, but they don't actually show that. They don't exploit that, which other films in the 80s definitely did. So this leads to me like an all is lost. So, oh, sorry. And then just before that, Chris and um, Roy, they kind of, they're taunting, discussing, and pleading with Sebastian about taking them to Tyrell. And there's a great kind of, not cat and mouse taunting, but just... You know, him saying, I can't really take you there because he knows what's probably going to happen. And like, why don't we just all stay friends? But then they're going, yeah, but you don't quite have the genius that we need. And so Mm. there's that kind of, you know, payoff. And then they do twist his arm enough, sort of they exploit that illness that he has and play off that like, well, you don't have long to live. We don't have long to live. And that's all we really want is to kind of live a bit longer. Yeah. And um so he does. He does take them up to the the great pyramids of Los Angeles or whatever. Yeah. And,
0: <laughs> and and, and so it's a wonderful scene. I mean Yeah, is, this scene. With is this the, the death do you think? I it's sort think of, this is,
1: yeah. This because, is the all is lost. And
0: this is one of those interesting things and we see this in a number of movies. There are some movies that are really um plot beats are very straightforward. Yeah. One protagonist uh has each of these important points yeah, yeah. and we've seen some where they have chronologically mixed up mm. uh you know the the actual uh plot point or beat occurred in the past but mm. we're seeing a yeah. flashback we're of seeing, it and the yeah, effects that can This yeah. one here uh and which was the other one was was where it was a someone else so this is where Roy the the death of the idea that replicants can live yeah. beyond four years yeah. occurs here. So there is hope up to this point mm. that maybe there will be some resolution between yeah. Deckard and these replicants and Rachel as well because there's this concern about Rachel. She's a well, replicant, so how old
1: is so, she? So, I mean, that's the thing. We we as an audience are taken on a journey here where at first the replicants seem like murdering robots, which they kind of are, but then as we learn more and more about their actual truth, and also the Deckard scenario, that when they get to when he gets to this point, even with Sebastian, they've been taunting and discussing and playful, like even this scene with Tyrell, we're we're almost on their side a little bit, you know. Yeah. Tyrell is the bad guy, actually, you know, like in the grand scheme of things, because and 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 that's why this scene's so cool so so and and again makes this film pretty it, it, a similar film with such substance for the villain is die hard you know like with hans and mm. it's the same here roy has we have a bit of empathy for roy and the more it goes on the more empathy we actually have for roy even though he's the antagonist
0: yeah and and this this here is his plot point yeah the 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 death the idea of longevity mm. and the fact that you have to accept some parts of what you're given yeah. and and try to live the best you can that's right which is it's a message for all of us really is, is that is. there are some things you just can't change yeah but you can, you know, it's, it's you can't, was it? You can't control the wind, but you can set your sails. Yeah. Is what? what Tyrell says. And Roy's not pleased with that. No, no. As is none it, of us are.
1: There's a couple of things there. Like, I mean, again, I don't know all the science, but didn't you find like his, Tyrell's explanation? It was, it was almost very, very much like he was almost talking about a human body. It was like, oh, if we increase the protein, the protein will turn into, you know, this and then that accelerates the virus. You'll have a virus that will just kill you anyway. And it was all very biological, which I'm sure the Nexus 7, 6s, whatever they are, 6s, they're so sophisticated. Sure, they are biological, but it was like, we've implanted this doomsday device in you and anything around it will just destroy you anyway. Yeah. But the descriptions of them, it wasn't. Mechanical. It was almost like they were talking about a human body. Yes. You know, it was like a sickness. If we try to, so it's the same as us, right? It's a metaphor for us. Like, oh, I want to live till I'm two hundred. Yeah, but if we, so if we give you that protein strike, if we mix with your DNA, it's going to end up with you with like
0: cancers. It, it always just turns like, into cancer. Yeah, like
1: you're going to be can You know, it's going to then destroy your brain and cancer, and you're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, we. But you could come up with something that like you know, like slows the beat of my heart. Oh, but yeah, we're just going to end up with cancer. <laughs> you know, like, so, and and then a virus like COVID could just knock you out because you're too old and not, you know. So yeah, that was to me that all is lost and it was a great scene. So that kind of jumps us after that, that the stakes are rail, raised now for Deckard because the, you know, Roy and, and, and et cetera, it's like, um, and Pris now are, like, they can't save themselves. So, no. are they just going to go on a manic, like, killing spree? They have to be stopped kind yeah. of thing. Um, and so, Deckard learns that J.F. Sebastian was also murdered. And I was like, oh. Well, yeah, because
0: he he calls J.F. Sebastian and Pris answers. Yeah.
1: Can I just say before that, but that death of Tyrell, like in the version I saw, was squeezing the eyeballs into the brain, awesome death. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome death. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was a little bit like, off camera it's, on the theatrical Yeah, release. it's pretty brutal. Uh, he, he puts his thumbs yeah. poised to go in.
1: In the version I, I saw, you see a lot and you don't need to see much because then it's like, you know, it's cutting to his hands back, you know, looking from t- almost Tyrell's point of view mm. almost and you're just hearing the crunching and the screaming. <laughs> you know, like a literal robot like he was would just squish our human brain and it's, cr- it's great.
0: He's gone Kudos. straight in for it. Yeah. So so Deckard, he, he gets the gets the wind of J.F. Sebastian uh, as being a contact. And he calls and it goes to Pris. Mm. And, you know, a woman answers and Deckard's going, okay, well, they've obviously already got to him. Yeah. So heads on down to the Bradbury apartments mm. and it's, you know, beautifully shot again with light. Lights, and, the fans. Um, spotlights flashing and swirling yep. through and... Yep. Uh, up there, he splashes through the water and it's pouring rain outside. Yeah. And he goes in and we get a quiet moment as he, he wanders through. And here he can't tell the difference between Pris and the other mannequin androidy things. Yeah. Uh, until he sort of looks a bit too closely and then she fights sure. him and he ends up shooting her. Yeah. There's a great
1: is- groin kind of cracking of his neck by Pris, yeah. which is great. She's on top of his neck and kind of cracking him, which yeah, was great. Yeah,
0: keep, keeping him, trying to twist his head around. Yeah. But you remember, pro Pris, she wasn't a military robot. She was no. a military slash leisure robot. Yeah, yeah. So lucky for uh, Deckard, really, because yeah. uh, the other one, I don't know if we got her name, the snake woman, mm. she was an assassin yeah. killer. So, yeah. yeah, he got off lightly with her. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Roy returns and we get this cat and mouse yeah, sort scenario. of situation where Roy is sort of he kind of okay, he's won. At, and ironically, you've got to think, if Deckard hadn't killed Pris, Roy was only going to live for another, what, hour? Yeah, yeah. At best. Yeah. And Pris not much more than that. And it seemed Roy only went after Deckard because yeah, he, he killed Pris. Yeah, because he
1: went up and he kisses Pris and...
0: Yeah, yeah. and it, as again, it's, it's very touching. And, and this flashing between sort of a, a cold... Machine logic and child, like yeah. like you'd imagine, uh, it's almost like a, a child doesn't quite understand death. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and maybe a, a teenager getting their first kiss, and yeah. you are know, like it's yeah, Ruka does a great job of this. Like yeah. you, you, it comes across as crazy. Yeah. But you realize it's, it's not crazy. It's no. it's just it's confused. It's upset. It yeah. doesn't know what to do mm. with its emotions. He rips his clothes off and runs around in his <laughs> pantaloons.
1: Yeah. Um, and and there's a great like you're saying there. There's a great con like conflict he's having because Deckard runs, which is, is and tries to escape. Uh, you know this cat and mouse scenario, and it, he whereas Roy is kind of like is in control, but he's not. He's having the he's the one having the kind of existential kind of
0: well, he's crisis. A, point, he's got a time like,
1: clock on him. Yeah, but he but he's kind of going. I want to kill you because you killed Prisp. But this world doesn't make much sense. (laughs) You know, should I kill you? I could just kill you. But I'm going to also die. You're fearful of me. Should you be... Yes, you should be fearful of me. There is no answer. I can't extend my life. Should I squash your life? You know, it's a very very metaphorically him really discussing that whilst he's like (laughs) taunting And And, and And it's such a great lot of shots here, isn't it? Because... The building is like breaking apart. He clambers up the that sort of staircase. Uh, he's, he's fighting
0: for his life like, as best
1: he yeah, can. Yeah, and the, you know he's really not a hero in the traditional sense here. Like he's he, he is a frightened little mouse, whereas um, Roy is the cat. You mm. know, and and he's like a f- scurrying away. You know, and he, and he, he that great scene where he you know Roy punches a hole through the wall and brings his arm through and cracks breaks both his fingers. Um, There's a lot of howling and screaming and water running down the walls. I thought there was a lot of connotations here that then we've seen in the Matrix. And so this is obviously Mm. the Matrix. I mean, the Matrix has borrowed this aesthetic. Yeah. And Dark City would be another one of the darkness of the rain, of the wet inside the buildings. Yes. So, like, inside this Bradbury... With during this chase, it's it's raining like anything outside, but we have these wet walls like, literally, rain dripping down and the walls,
0: rotten floors, rotten and floors, soaking, and, yeah.
1: and walls that punch through. And we see that you know in the Matrix, it's Agent Smith that does that. You yes. know, it's the same kind of concept. Um, so I saw some connotations
0: there. Oh, even the, the finale where Deckard jumps and doesn't make it, yeah, and then mm. the robot uh, does just goes boing, jumps yep. across pretty easily, yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, sits there and watches him, and that, he he says that line that you started this yeah. episode with, which yeah. is, uh, you know, this is what it's like to live in fear. Yeah, it's what it's like to live as a slave. Yeah, yeah. Except, I think Roy thinks of it again and goes, "Well, hang on. He's been struggling and fighting for life, just like. I just mean, is like it really living in fear as a slave, or is it, yeah. re- or is living in fear, living? Yeah, is is that is, is that what this is? Yeah. And and he has that. Turn around. This is the reversal mm. that happens because the the original plan was Deckard's going to come in and execute them. Also, Roy's original plan was he's going to come and execute Deckard. Deckard. Yeah. But then we've had this reversal where things are not so simple. Yeah. And he saves Deckard and pulls him up, and you can see Roy's had this real revelation of like, mm. you know, this this is what life is. Mm. Life isn't um, having it easy. Yeah life is your experiences and your experiences are both good like yeah. we, he would have had good times with Pris, and and bad which is yeah. what's going on here and without that uh you know with death you lose all of that and and he has his little monologue yeah, where it he does. he points that out he's seen all these incredible things the things that that you wouldn't believe as he says yeah. but <laughs> then you know he's going to die and that's yeah. that's all going to be gone all
1: those memories are gone
0: and that's yeah. kind of why he doesn't kill deckard because yeah. He doesn't want first of all, he's just told Descartes this and he also doesn't want what's just happened to be lost. Yes. You say it, because if he kills Descartes and then he just dies, then what was all the meaning of Pris's death? What was the meaning of his struggle to find Tyrell and all the that rest? Right. So
1: So he dies, he doesn't dies. He? In that moment, he's frozen and Descartes takes him in and he really does take him in. There's a moment in the version I saw he's taking him in, and then Gaff startles him. Yes. And he sort of, he says, what line does he say? Something like...
0: Um, I suppose you're wondering about Rachel.
1: Yeah, then. she won't... But she's. He says the line was something like, too bad she won't live, but then who does?
0: Yeah, who really does? Yeah. Which again, is kind of that resetting of this theme a bit, yeah. this, um, that, that we have about life and memories and experience. Mm. And okay, so here, here again, we have a bit of a diversion. So the original yeah. theatrical release, Deckard goes, ah, he's talked about rachel he knows yeah and he goes home and he goes in and rachel's covered with the sheets yep and he's afraid the worst has happened but yep. he gets that close realize just sleeping kiss they wake up yep they exit the apartment because obviously he's gone like we can't hang here yeah and he stops and looks back and sees there's a little Orgami. origami unicorn unicorn now <laughs> because the original theatrical didn't have the unicorn dream yeah there was no relationship there yeah except there was a unicorn motif in Jeff Sebastian's. And as I said, there, there is a traditional idea of a unicorn being that unusual, exceptional thing. Yeah. And this is Deckard getting to have a relationship, you know, with Rachel because you can tell it from one point of view that saying, Gaff saying, you're a sad bum of a dude yeah. who's not had a good life. This is your unicorn. Like yeah. your relationship with Rachel is something that is special. Yeah. And it's one off. I'm letting you have it. Yeah. The introduction of the unicorn dream is supposed to let us say that Gaff was in fact Deckard's handler, mm-hmm. and just like Deckard knew of all of Rachel's memories, Gaff knew of it because. And it makes sense if if you even think of it. The way Gaff arrests him and, yeah. and is there with him when they're going to Leon's apartment, so it is very much like. Gaff isn't helping the investigation. No, no. Gaff but is just minding decker. Yeah, he just
1: keeps rocking up, doesn't he? So he it's knows.
0: almost as if Gaff is is the handler who's just keeping an eye from Biotrial Corp on yeah. this experiment. Yeah, and I I do kind of like that. I do prefer the, and this is controversy here. Mm. I do prefer the theatrical release from the point of view that it's not. It's not so, there isn't that unicorn dream, which I didn't think it was entirely in keeping with the feel of the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah. A unicorn dream like that is kind of a weirdly optimistic little dream to have hmm. uh, in such a dreary place. Yeah. And then they walk out the elevator, door closes, the final cut ends there. Yep. Theatrical version then has the happy ending. Right, which is where they're driving through um, natural wilderness, green areas, which is sort of odd. And there's a bit of a voiceover with, that says, "You know, uh, we don't know. You know, they said that uh, you know, replicants have four years. Uh, we don't think that's with Rachel. We don't think that's the case with Rachel because you know she's kind of a special, serial special experiment. Mm. How long we're going to have? We don't know. Yeah, but it's going to be good, type yeah. of thing, and." Yeah, that's sort of nice. And it's a very contrasting ending scene to the opening where they are coming to that dismal place. Yeah, yeah. I can see the arguments against that ending because where did all this green countryside come from and why aren't people living there?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Okay, so if we just go, they just exit the elevator and their doors close, Mm. that's still... It's a reasonably optimistic ending. It's like they get to have their moment.
1: Yeah, and that that was the version I saw. And to me, it was... With that voiceover, because they repeat that voiceover of Gaff saying, you know, too bad she won't live, but who does? It's kind of almost, to me, the interpretation is like, just live your life. Yeah. And because early in the film, she said, like, will I be hunted if I got out of the city? And he goes, well, not by me. This is Deckard. Yeah. And he goes, but someone else will. And so I interpreted at the end, like, someone like Gaff or another cop would... Just try to hunt you. Another Blade Runner would come hunting for you. Yeah. But the value in that is it's almost like Gaff saying, I'm going to give you a head start. Like, go for it. Run away. Yeah. Live the life with her. But someone's probably going to come for you. And yeah. went, that might be tomorrow, but it m- or it might be in five years. So, you get the five years with her. Yeah. And the whole point of Rook Hal's big speech is kind of like, you've got to have those memories, otherwise you just die anyway. Yeah. So, that was sort of my interpretation. So, whether you need a drive through the wilderness or not to double prove that, it just felt to me like he looks at that origami, there's that voiceover line, and Deckard kind of like goes, yeah, you know, and he like runs to the elevator, whatever, mm. right? So, he's, he's choosing, and it's a very different Deckard to the start, who's kind of like moping on the city street, yeah. ordering noodles, not really living a life.
0: He, he has gained. He's gained some sort of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. So if you want to chew me out for my controversial statements I've made, then please, <laughs> go, for it. please, please go for it. I mean, why not? This movie has been the center of many debates. It has. As people have uh, pulled apart various nuances and so forth yeah. from the technical screen, you know, visuals and so forth through to as the story elements and philosophy. Uh, so let us know. You know where?
1: Yeah, you can find us. Meanwhile, Ridley Scott's like, I just wanted a movie about a cop I chasing a, robots. A
0: future cop movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, dudes, the unicorn doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> You're over-reading this, man. You're yeah,
0: over-interpreting I passed by an op shop and there's this cool dusty unicorn thing, so I bought it and put yeah. it in the scenes with the And I've Jace just decided Sebastian. to
1: put unicorns in all my movies because I think it's cool, man.
0: Yeah, so we have Blade Runner and we have
1: Ridley. If you are out there, please correct us.
0: Get in touch. Get I know, know you'll want to. Yeah, we have our classic ladder, which is yep. a separate little pile of goodies. Yes. To go Very through, good.
1: and I think we've got fourteen.
0: Well, of them. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, really, uh, this
1: anyway, we need to. As we said, we're going. I think we're going to episode one hundred, oh. and we're going to tidy 10. this up. Yeah, anyway, it doesn't really matter about the, how many rungs on the ladder. 18. It's just where My suggestion, nice and quickly, I think, tonight for this bit, sorry, is if you watched Total Recall, Blade Runner, and Demolition Man. If I'd watch that trilogy, I think that would be one hell of a science fiction. Should you watch Blade Runner first? Because
0: Total Recall borrows quite a few visual elements. Yeah,
1: I get uh, it, but I just think that three in the mix... Would be a uh, cool Yeah, mix. it is. It's,
0: it's a pretty good mix. But let me there. know
1: what your trilogy would be out there in Space Brand Land. What about you, Sorry? Where was are you it, going to put it? I, I like it with Alien.
0: Yeah. And The Matrix. The okay. Ooh, okay. Because
1: yeah, with, yeah.
0: So Alien, the the visuals of Alien are actually mm. very similar. To they are, God. aren't they?
1: Yeah, that And detail. you can see
0: they're both Ridley Scott and yep. you can see where, I mean, it's only, what, four years after Alien or something. Yeah, yeah. That he made this one. Yeah. And so you've got to think that, Probably took him a year or two to, to do it, and so it's actually really close behind um, Alien, and the use of the lighting and the coloration, mm-hmm. and even that some of the visual effects and oh, styling. Oh yeah, yeah, you can is, see the Ridley Scott is very Alien. Yeah, and sure. so it would it would be great Alien and Blade Runner, and I'm gonna yeah let's go with the um uh, what did I say? Matrix. Matrix. Oh, my goodness. Like, oh, <laughs> lucky I can talk tonight.
1: You are. You're lucky, lucky. Okay. Well, that would be nice. Quick, what about the science? What type of science can you pull out? Is it going to be robotics? Is it memories? Is the, it?
0: We've talked about a lot of these things, but yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea of what is it that gives us identity? And oh, uh, I'm going to preface this with this being heavily based in the, the science of psychology. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to get a definitive answer on this. All we yep. can do is get strong hints of direction. Yeah. And I was reading through one of my favorite little science art magazines called Scientific American. Right. And they had an article there written by Dr. Bobby Azarian. Got,
1: I thought you were going to say Bobby Newport.
0: No, uh, he, he's <laughs> Dr., Dr. Bobby. That's Uh, He's got his PhD in neuroscience from George Mason University. Of course. He conducts research in the Visual Attention and Cognition Lab. Nice. So that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So he he wrote a wonderful argument argument article summing up some of the research around identity and, you know, whether it occurs in our memory Mm -hmm. or not. Ooh, okay. Are we, in fact, uh, our memory? And so what we've we've got to talk about here is... um, our sense of identity can be a personal sense of identity we yep. have, yep. or yep. the way other people see us. Yeah, okay. And okay. so it's it's very hard to determine how we see ourselves because we change subtly all through the time. And look, I personally think
1: you never get you never will understand how other people see you.
0: No. So what we can look at though is how uh, how, for example, someone that I know very well, whether they are the same or different from yesterday. Yeah. So what we're going to... We we look through a bit of the history, though, first of all, which is in the 17th century, we had John Locke, which was the name from Lost, hmm. if you remember that. He was named oh, yeah. after John Locke. I remember yeah, so, John Locke. So, so the real John Locke, though, was a British <laughs> empiricist. And he had this thing called the memory theory, where he says that uh, a person's identity only reaches as far as their memory extends into the past. So Gosh. in other words... Uh, yeah, who, if you, you can't make new memories. Yeah, who one is, it critically depends on what one remembers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thus, as a person's memory begins to disappear, so does identity. Yep. So, and this is really interesting because then you go, well, we have people who have deteriorating memory. Yeah. We've got Alzheimer's That's disease. Right, yeah, yeah. So a two thousand and four study followed alzheimer 's patients and found that those exhibiting impairments in autobiographical memory so that 's memory about themselves, themselves yeah yep. yeah found that those exhibiting impairments uh, they on a standard set of psychological tests they showed they had changes in the strength and quality of their identity, so the strength of identity was determined by um, they they asked a whole bunch of questions about, please describe you, you know, answer this question yep. in as many ways as you can. Yep. Who am I? Yeah. You, you know, obviously, so who are you? You know, yes. <laughs> answer ask that of yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they would go, well, uh, how many unique statements? So that's like the strength of yeah. their identity. And then how abstract or specific were the statements? Right. And that's the quality. And they, they certainly found that, of course, as people progressed through Alzheimer's, mm. they had fewer ways of describing who they were. Right. And they, they were more and more abstract. They were, less, mm. they were like, oh, I'm a person. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was born. You know, yeah. you kind of go, okay, yeah, you don't. But this, of course, is, is not too convincing from the point of view of, well, is this just someone who can't remember how to say things about their memory? Yeah. Are they... But. Are they still identifiably them? Mm. And so we've got to, to ask other people, say, does this person here who's losing their memory uh, do they seem like themselves? Mm. Uh, would you say they at some point, uh, and this is, gets reported at some point uh, in mental degeneration, mm. a person or through you know accident trauma, mm-hmm. they're not the same person. Yep. Yep. so there's there another little experiment was done. Experiment seems a little bit odd, as, as actually a series of um, observations as opposed to necessarily an experiment. But so they, they did this uh, cognitive uh, social cognition research. right? So they found out that for the Im- impression of identity is largely dependent on the moral dimension. Ooh So in other words, how we see people whether positive, negative, or to be approached or avoided, is mostly determined by our assessment of their moral character and not their intellect, knowledge, or other personality traits. Yeah, okay. Okay. And if you think about that, if you see some guy wearing sort of, you know, what you might consider tough, you know, bikey gang type Neo stuff with, outfit. with, you know, facial tattoos and, and scarring, and they're looking a little bit kind of rugged, mm. You're, you're you're probably going to be a little bit concerned about approaching them yeah. because you're thinking that they're a little bit morally different to yourself. Yep. They're, yep. 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 They might punch you in the face, yep. basically. Yep. Or or just not be that concerned about the same things you are, and mm. so you know you, you sort of you don't really care how intelligent they are or whether mm. they remember their childhood. No. None of that seems to make much difference to you. So the, these researchers at the University of Arizona and Yale, they decided to investigate this hypothesis. Through a real world clinical population. So, they, uh, a crucial element of the design was testing for changes in identity from the perspective of a third person observer rather than the individual. Okay. So, they found that changes on the patient's um, patients' relationships with others is particularly important because when someone is not the same person, mm-hmm. uh, like they're, they're, the way they relate to their carers and their loved ones. Mm-hmm causes real damage yeah like you know they 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 have trouble like that and that's that's a real effect mm-hmm. of uh on someone's life rather than trying to figure out whether they personally identify as one thing or another yep it's like you know so how did they do this well they took 248 volunteers uh with family members who suffered from one of three types of neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. So we've got Alzheimer's. Yeah. As we know, that tends to cause a lack of you know, uh, mental acuity and memory. Frontotemporal dementia. And our friend from last episode, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Ooh. ALS. That one. Uh, yeah. And that's the one about the guy's locked yeah. in and he's using his brain to control stuff. Yeah. Yep. So each each of these is characterized by something slightly different. So we know that Alzheimer's uh, affect your brain. Mm-hmm. Frontotemporal dementia also affects your brain. Mm-hmm. However, they tend to undergo changes in moral traits, things like honesty, compassion, decency, integrity. Yeah. Whereas ALS is mostly motor Neuro, cortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. can't move their body properly, which causes you know physical decline yep. and an inability to interact normally. Yep. So then they asked these, these 248 uh-huh. family members uh, or married, romantically involved, um, you know, people yeah. uh, to rate uh, these 30 traits um, since the disease began. And 15 mm-hmm. of them were related to morality and 15 to personality. Yeah. And to evaluate the degree of change in the perceived identity, participants were asked to give information regarding any differences in their relationship. So, for example, they'll ask questions like, uh, Does the patient ever seem like a stranger to you? Uh-huh. Do you feel like you still know the patient, who the patient is? So they had a look there, and you can guess, oh, you probably guess where this is headed. Mm. But basically, the perceived greatest disruptions in patients' identity was when there were changes in moral traits.
1: Yeah, right. So,
0: uh, cognitive deficits, like seen with amnesia or what have you, didn't really seem to make a difference with the way people perceive them. Mm. They're just like, oh, yeah, I don't remember my phone number. I can't remember where I live. Yeah. But, oh, do you like puppies? Oh, yes, I like puppies. Yeah. Oh, you are <laughs> a nice person. Yeah. You yeah, know, because all nice people like puppies. Uh, best when they're slow roasted. True, oh, yes, with honey. of course, yeah. Delicious. Tasty. Yes. Uh, okay, likewise, ALS, which is mostly, you know, motor neuron diffi- uh, problems. Mm-hmm. They were still perceived as the same person, right? right which is nice, but world's uh frontotemporal dementia, uh, they had the tendency to uh deteriorate their morality that they tend to lie more, mm. uh, or they will maybe they'll actually just start really telling the truth, yeah. Well, uh, you know, and suddenly people it's confronted the was they're going. Oh, oh my goodness me! This is not the same person I used to know. They yeah. used to be so diplomatic and pleasant. This person is <laughs> a little bit rough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but the the important thing of this, of course, is if we're going to come across uh, people with uh, you know Alzheimer's, sometimes they do have changes in their morality. Yeah. Or with the other de- dementia, the idea is that we can treat them on a you know psychotherapy-style level mm. as looking at these moralities. So, listing what do they feel is important, what are, what's, you know, what's their integrity like, and understanding that those are the things that really matter to people. Uh-huh. And yeah. so, I was thinking in this movie, they've thrown memories into Rachel about you know, us spiders and about her mum and so forth yeah. in an effort to understand emotions better. But this research is sort of suggesting that maybe actually their identity is primarily based around what their morality is. So perhaps they should have given their replicants morality instead Mm. of just memories. Yeah. Mind you, that would make very poor soldiers.
1: (laughs) That's right. But but Roy kind of... Develops that, doesn't it, In a way, I, I, just,
0: I just want to clarify. I don't believe that soldiers are immoral people. <laughs> I just feel that if you're making killbots specifically to send off to murder people, which is what these robots were made for, yeah, it would be bad if they had human morality. Yes, as we've as we've actually seen. But why am so- I shooting him? <laughs> there, there are soldiers who have refused orders yeah. to to perform, you know, yeah. executions and um, yep. push bomb buttons and things, which is nice. Mm. Yeah. Thanks to that, that Russian dude in the bunker who said, no, this doesn't seem like a good thing to do. This is going to kill everyone.
1: <laughs> I'm going to stop that for a minute. Yeah, Let's think like, about this for a second. This is going to
0: kill all my friends and family. It's going to kill all the other people. I said, mm, yeah. This is probably not the right no, choice. choice, yeah. Thank you. Keep yeah. making that choice.
1: But that's the thing. So my thinking on what you've said there as well is that, well, Roy kind of developed to that point, didn't he? He did. Like by saving Descartes, he, he could have just killed him, especially just coming off the fact that he just killed Press. but he, he decided not to.
0: And, and that's interesting because as, as we see, Roy didn't really have much in the way of memories. No, he, only he, had, a couple, he had a few four years, years of yeah. memory at most. So, and they were, he was programmed as a soldier killer. Mm. Yeah. Like, he was not programmed uh, to question orders yeah. or to feel sympathy for his victims. Uh, you know, he was a, mm. a bomb yeah. to go off. Yeah. But without a full life of memories, he was still able to form a strong identity. Yes. And his identity was one that he loved, Press, and he came to appreciate the value of what life there is available. Yeah.
1: So, given him more time, he might develop more of those memories and therefore a different personality.
0: Well, that's the thing is, you could say at four years, perhaps they just retire and go into other professions. Yeah. Because, you know, they could be lots of other things. Mm. They could be delivery drivers.
1: Yeah. But I don't think they want them in this world of Blade Runner. Like, No, I think they,
0: there's they, enough people. Yeah. And yeah. then the people are saying, now they're taking our jobs.
1: Yeah. And they're stronger. They can just murder people whenever they want <laughs>
0: I don't think that people who are strong just want to murder people. No, I'm not all.
1: saying people that are strong, but I'm saying their far superior strength makes them quite dangerous. You'd end up with a Hancock situation. Yeah, yeah you do. Is, it. It's you, you going got,
0: bad to you got to people. watch that movie Hancock. Yeah,
1: and the same with what we saw in The Machine last week. Yeah. Same concept. Same Joe. thing. Is,
0: you, you get to that one point where someone says, uh, I'm going to be rude and bully you because mm. I think I'm so good, and there's Roy just going, I am so physically superior yeah. to you that I could crush well, your skull with my hand. And that's what
1: happened with Deckard, right? At the end like Deckard Deckard's a hunter of these things and he knew he was in trouble. Yes. And he runs like a little mouse, you know, like he he doesn't confront him, he's running from yeah, he's going <laughs> And he's a hunter of he's a blade runner, like yeah. it's it you know, most uh, movies like that, the detective doesn't run away. It's like trying to hunt down the bad guy, right? No, he like, always has some case. cunning
0: little plan. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that doesn't mean he doesn't get hurt and shot or whatever, but it's in this context, Dick, I was like, no, 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 I've got to kind of like go get reinforcements or something. I've got to get yeah. myself in a better position.
0: He, I mean, up to that point, he just basically relied on the fact that he has a gun. Yeah. And he's a good shot. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't and help that you shoot that much. them
1: dead. You shoot them dead.
0: So anyway, that, that's a science, science of awesome. morality makes your identity. So you might want to think then, if your morality is what makes you you, know, what sort of person are you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what are your morals? What are your morals? What do you find important? And perhaps perhaps that's how you can change. Even if you've got bad memories, mm. perhaps the way you can change is by taking a look. As this suggests here, it says, uh, new, the new research is also important Intellectual contributions to discussions surround the ancient question of what makes someone who they are. It appears it's not our intelligence or our knowledge or the past that defines us, but instead our moral behavior.
1: Mm, Nice. Uh,
0: Essentially, identity is not what we know, but what we stand for. There we go. That's how you change yourself. Mm, Interesting stuff. Okay.
1: So that brings us to the end of Blade Runner, episode 80. Uh, let us know what you thought. Hit us up on wherever you're listening to us. Give us a five-star rating or a thumbs up or a tick of approval or a, re- a review. All of those things can mean more people can access Space Brains. Uh, feel free to follow us on um, our website, spacebrains.com. We Thank are you. red... Dot, dot au sorry yeah, yeah. and uh, we are regularly on facebook instagram tiktok if you want to reach out you should also hopefully post festival get to see some visual content of us yes. you might have had you know some sort of vision of who we are and those videos are going to dispel that. Sorry. Yes, we
0: are. We are
1: built. Good or bad. We're or built bad.
0: for podcasts.
1: That's right. Um, so check it out. They'll be coming to YouTube and probably some of the other channels. So stay tuned for that. Our next episode,
0: sorry, will be... Chappie. Chappie. Ch- Chappie was a uh, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, another Neil Blomkamp one. Um, it's, I, I've seen it once. It's another robotic uh, one. But I'm pretty keen to see it again yeah. because I seem to remember it's, it's quite sort of charming.
1: Yeah, and look, we did District Nine a while ago, and good old Blonkoff is into his sci-fi. He's a full-blown sci-fi director, He'd done numerous stuff, including that sort of recent TV series on Netflix. So, I mean, studio, um, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely go check him out. And I look forward to talking about Chappie on Chappy. the next episode yeah. of Space Brains. See ya! Bye. Bye.